In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1724 to 1737. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1724. Story number one. Here's to the losers, written by Luke, was not here. How the humans winning. For months, they battered us, made a mockery of our culture. The biggest insult of all was that they showed mercy. Why in the Queen's name did they show mercy? On one of those dark days, we found out. The whole galaxy did. One of the human generals somehow hacked into, well, everything. Every news station, every screen on our planet. Everything. Our unit was in a now-ruined capital when those giant screens on even bigger buildings all lit up. A recorded video of their leader. He was a small thing, really, even by their standards. He wore his now infamous orange and blue bandana and tired eyes. It was the first time any of us saw his face. Well, I would introduce myself, but I have the suspicion you all already know entirely too much about me. He smiled, his words coming together and echoing on thousands of screens. This message isn't for the Queen, not for her army, not even mine. All for the galaxy who's been watching this war for months, who didn't dare to intervene. This isn't for just one species, for those arbitrarily deemed important. The human paused. It is for you. The everyday citizens on planets I couldn't even dream of. The forgotten soldier. The starved slave. The nobodies. And I'll let you in on a secret. Of the thousands of people and aliens I've met on one moon and two planets. In all that time, I never met somebody who wasn't important. Even the soldiers who fight us. I understand why. This isn't to convince you. This is just to tell you why we decide to fight a war we can't win. And why we are winning. Why we showed mercy. A word most of you have never known. It is because you're one of us. Someone who would rather die with their heads held high for a good cause than live on their knees. The only thing different about us is what we believe. Although we all do have one thing in common. We want this war to end. And it will soon, I promise. The only question is, how? His smile faded. How do you want this to end? How many more of us have to die? How many more children do we have to orphan? Buildings we have to bomb for us to stop fighting. For a warrior queen who's never led a battle. For the slum kids abandoned by their parents. He gestured to himself. Because you're just as important as the queen. As I am. As anybody. And that means you should live and grow old. And be loved. His eyes welled up in tears yet to fall. Is she, am I, worth dying for? I'm okay with dying to free your slaves. Are you okay dying to keep them? We all stood in silence. We didn't drop our guns. We didn't join them the next day. But he did do something more dangerous than any bomb or gun. He planted an idea of revolution. That every time they captured instead of killed, every building they didn't bomb, every time they showed mercy, that seed grew. Their leader spoke again, his smile finally returning. Here's to the losers. Bless 
them all. End of story. Story number two. One weird trick written by Weijin warrior. Humans, the speaker said, pointing to the figure in the hollow display with two forelimbs. Humans will likely spread through the galaxy faster than scale rot. The display shifted, displaying Sol and the neighboring stars. The unmistakable signature of torch drives have been verified by stealth probes. The speaker continued, currently only in local system, but given humans, uh, frankly, the inexplainable drive to push outwards faster than their logistics chain can follow up. Forecasts indicate that humans will attempt to reach other systems in a comparably short time. Query, one of the listeners injected, how long would it take the humans to structure a sustainable logistic system for crewed missions to nearby systems instead of using artificial intelligence probes? Irrelevant, the speaker stated as all eight legs shifted nervously. Humanity is reckless by our standard and does not possess trustworthy AIs. They will send crewed missions first, even if the risk would be unacceptable to us. And they have a nasty trick up there, Steve which they have used in their own system since the first interplanetary travels. Two spheres appeared on the display, both centered on the unassuming yellow star, humanity, called Sol. Please note that these spheres are purely for demonstration purposes. The important thing here is the relative size difference. The speaker paused, wrapping its mind around the sheer risk of spheres it represented. The speaker then highlighted the inner sphere. The inner sphere illustrates the torchship's range if used as most species do. Spend a quarter of its supplies accelerating at a constant rate, then another quarter to deaccelerate. The last two quarters would be spent on the journey back to the point of origin. The speaker highlighted the outer sphere. No one in the audience could fail to realize how many more stars were inside that faintly glowing shell. Humans! Humans will likely spend half of their consumables accelerating, and the other half deaccelerating. As you will note, with the assumptions I put into this model on acceleration and supplies carried, the sphere covers a volume approximately 125 times the volume of the first sphere. The speaker turned off the display. All eyes on the audience, none have spoke for several seconds. Given a uniform distribution of stars, the speaker said slowly, which is an oversimplification. Humanity's one weird trick will give them access to more than 100 times the number of systems than any other known races as their level of development. 100 times the resources. 100 times the chance of meeting another species. 100 times the chance of learning the secret to superluminal travel before humanity realizes their place in the cosmos. The speaker fell silent. Finally, one of the audience spoke up. But, Trick, there is no risk that we know of that would eliminate the risks of not having supplies to go back. The speaker shrugged with all four forelimbs. As far as we can tell from the interceptor transmission, they call it in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU. They go somewhere, then fabricate the supplies to go home. The speaker looked up towards the dark ceiling before whispering. Or... Uh, Considering the humans, go on. End of story. Story number three. The Butt, written by Hexanano. It was odd. Out of all the sentient, sapient beings in the Milky Way galaxy, only humans had a butt. 
Now, all the legged base beings had a posterior, but it was flat and trim. Nothing like the standard human posterior. Once we got out here and got accustomed to the lifestyle of intersolar society, we had to find ourselves a niche. Either find an empty one, steal one, or carve one out for ourselves. We ended up doing a little of the third, and a lot of the second. Accountants and tech specialist positions were dominated by techno-organic species from a nearby arm of the galaxy. Politics and economics were generally handled by these tiny little talking toads from Kepler-186F. Combat, bodyguarding, and mercenarial work was handled by a big, hulking bear-crab platypus-looking species from Tau-Botus-B, and so on and so forth. I suppose it could be likened to when primordial man started walking the plains of Africa. We were apex predators. We were herding herbivores. We were just us. We were smarter than the average bear. We had a variable diet. We had decent eyes, and we had a nice butt. Our brains were geared towards pattern recognition that put those good eyes to use. Our diet let us survive off whatever we could find. But it was our butt that was our saving grace. The big butt was packed full of big muscles connected to our legs, with a convenient source of fatty energy stored right in sight. It meant that we could stand upright for long periods of time, and with wide and deep field of view, and a brain that sees spaces and potential threats everywhere. We were good at surviving. We'd see the threat early and take off running with a head start that a sprinting predator couldn't make up. Now, in space our eyes were outmatched by our senses, our diet was non-issue, and our pareidolia was just vaguely annoying. But our butt, that was what gave us the chance to find our niche once again. Every space-faring species was either slow and strong, or fast and slippery, and all of them tired easily. But us, we could outpace them all. We were lightning bruises in a world of fragile speedsters, mighty glaciers, stone walls, and glass cannons. We nudged, shoved, and eventually kicked those bear-crab platypus things out of the mercenary business single-handedly. It didn't matter how fast you were, we outpaced you. If you could dish out the damage, we'd juke and exhaust you. And if you were resilient and tough, well, the Chinese had a thing called Ling Chi, which roughly translates to a death by a thousand cuts. We'd starve you out and whistle you down, and above all, we would outlast you. We took ages to tire compared to all other species. Humans became the mercenaries of the Milky Way, all because of our butt. Who'd have guessed? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1725 The Sleeping Giant, written by the R Guy Humanity, that name conjures up a lot. Humanity is the premier trading power of the galaxy. If you want something, the Terrans will get it to you. And their ideal X-Class superfreighters are something to behold, able to hold more than a billion tons of raw materials and luxury with a full crew of Terrans. You were guaranteed that nothing would interfere with your goods. Their position, 25,000 light-years from the galactic core, meant that they were isolated from the disputes of the galactic conglomerate, but not too far enough that it would take six months for the ship to reach its destination. Instead, 
It just takes under a Terran month to get the home of the galactic conglomerate, Ploius. The Terrans said that they were pacifists and would not interfere with galactic politics. This principle was tested when the tight Mk war started, and the Terrans traded with both sides, giving them food and dihydrogen monoxide. They told the Galactic Council this was to ensure the survival of civilians. So we had researchers investigate the Terran military doctrine and found a rich history that ended abruptly 100 years before first contact with the war they called the War to End History. We discovered they found something within themselves during that war that they swore to destroy. After the war, they forged a document that the new Terran government must follow when it came to war. And on top of that list was the protection of civilians. This word was foreign to us once the country was begun a war. Everyone is involved in the war. And for the Terrans to say that you cannot poison the water that factory workers drink so that they can slow down production was a concept genuinely foreign. However, we let them be as why stop them from practicing their pacifist ideology when the Terrans saw the bombing of the Oimha by the tight forces. They suddenly stopped all ships transporting goods to tight territories and even turned around those already in transit. The sack shook the tight government, who immediately asked why the Terrans had stopped transporting vital aid. The Terrans stated that they could not be complicit in killing civilians. The tight were outraged at this, seeing the action was tantamount to a declaration of war. However, the humans were too far away for anyone to conceive of mustering an army to challenge the Terrans. So, the galaxy watched as the tight civilization collapsed into a brutal civil war, letting it happen. The Terrans, however, could not let the suffering endure even though they caused it. Unfortunately, the tight public had the same opinion as the tight government, and the Terrans' peace forces were pushed back by an angry mob of civilians. The Terrans realized after this that the rest of the galaxy does not think like them and thinks they're borderline crazy. So they accepted this fact and continued to trade with the core, but would no longer partake in supplying governments during a war. However, the Terrans did not see that enemies were beginning to see them as weak-minded and, with the vast resources, easy pickings for anyone within range. Within range was a crucial point, as it took weeks for any fleets to travel across the needed space to get to the border of the Terran Federation, and even more time to get to Terra itself. So only two empires could do it, the Favja Empire and the Distrik Empire. The District Empire was neutral to the Terrans and, being militaristic, fancied the Terrans' chances in battle. As they put it, you never unlearn the art of war. The Favja were much more opposed to the Terrans, and the two species had multiple close calls, mainly when super freighters were shot at for trespassing into Favja space. It started getting nasty for the Favja when one of their stars went supernova and destroyed a significant part of their breadbasket. So a famine began and looking for food. The Favja started to sponsor attacks on super freighters to collect food and meals for the hungry. Most were peaceful hijackings that stole the super freighters and ran into Favja territory. Of course, the Favja denied that they were sponsoring the pirates and that the pirates were looking out for those they loved. And the Terrans were suspicious and started to arm their super freighters slightly. This arming of cargo created a proxy war between the Terrans and the Favja, with only one side knowing that it was a proxy war. 
Then the Favja did something to piss the Terrans off royally. They massacred a crew. Overnight, the Favja were no longer harboring pirates, but terrorists. So the Terrans demanded an immediate surrender of the pirates responsible and the commander of the pirate organization, to which the Favja acted dumb. They said that they did not know what the Terrans were talking about and that the pirates were not a cohesive group. The Terrans, displeased, told the Favja royals that if they could not hand over those responsible for the deaths of the 578 Terran crew, then war would be declared. The Favja queen scoffed in the Terrans' face and agreed. You see, the Favja could not hand over the responsible because they were all high-level commanders who were not meant to kill the Terran crew. But kinship is more robust than all, so the Favja had to protect them. Compared to the Terrans, the Favja fleet were up and running quickly because of the recent conflict the Favja had been in. With the first war fleets being sent out only six months after the war began, these fleets knew that the planets and solar systems closest to the border would be more heavily armored. So they took a longer route and hoped that the Terran scanners would miss them. So, when they reached the system Thales, the Favja caught the system entirely off guard and with little defenses. The system was crushed, but not destroyed. This attack was a statement to the humans. We can come at you anywhere, and we will beat you. Unfortunately, this backfired on the Favja, as the attack only seemed to add more fuel to the fire of humanity's rage. After the attack, a statement by a Terran diplomat after the Terrans first united was published in news organizations across the galaxy as a statement by the Terran leadership. May we hope that the giant of war may never awake. That after a millennia it's been chasing us, it has grown tired. May it only grumble and snore in its long sleep. We must strive to keep it within its slumber. One day, they might once again walk this earth despite us all. At first, most races were confused about what the original speaker was implying. The original speech was layered in metaphors that made it hard to decipher. Some people thought it was about a literal giant walking the earth. Some thought the address was about the Terran ability to make war. I, however, raised the point that this might be talking about Terran simply waging war. My theory caught on as a claim of massive fleets moving within Terran space emerged. The intel was brushed off as the ships were only found to be super freighters moving mass amounts of steel. The Vavja continued to make attacks with more resistance than the last. With the growing losses suffered by the attack fleet, the Favja commander decided to move to a more strategic position and claim victory. They boasted in front of the Galactic Council about how they had beaten the Terrans easily and how little fight the Terrans had put up. After the speech, all eyes in the Galactic Council turned to the lowly Terran ambassador, who was smirking. Then standing up, they began to use the same metaphor as the speech presented four Terran months earlier. The giant cannot simply wake up and start fighting. They need to cook breakfast, get their gear on, and grab their weapons. And it is then, and only then, can the giant fight truly begin. So the war is not over, until we say it is, she said sternly. The Favjar ambassador laughed as if the Terran had just told the greatest of jokes in the world. The district seemed to have had an overconfidence in you because you seem to have forgotten how war works. Or do I need to explain it to you like you're my young? The Favja spat. The Terran, not amused, stood up stern and began to speak with a death in her blue eyes. 
A forge does not simply alight to the point where it can melt iron, no. It needs to be heated so the iron can melt. Sometimes you may place the iron in too early, and it does not melt instantly. You and your race are the iron ambassador, and sooner or later, you'll start to melt, before walking out to silence. Little did we all know at the time, but things were moving within Terran space. Old designs and concepts getting built in factories that surround a great gas giants. Hundreds of millions of beings were recruited to get ready for the great fight. Scientists concocted great weapons that could burn away a planet's atmosphere. Finally, an armada that spanned solar systems waiting at the Terran borders like it was all about to fall. All this kept secret and silent for the day it was activated. That day was January 25th on the Terran calendar. Sensors across the core picked up a significant movement within space heading towards the Favja Empire. Closer sensors told the core that the campaign was so massive that space was moving because of the number of ships going faster than light. All of it converging on Favja space. Two weeks would typically be enough to get some defenses up, but for armies of the Terran size, there was only one option. Pray to your gods for mercy and accept your coming death. Foolishly, the Favjar put up defenses on their border, hoping that they could stand long enough to gather intel on what the Terran ships and weapons looked like. But they could not even do that. The outpost lasted just 15 galactic standard minutes between first contact with the Terrans when ceasing all communication. The pictures it sent back haunted the Favjar leadership. The images showed a great mass of grey getting closer and closer, before the feed was lost. The first solar system hit was the Gardrit system. It stood longer than the defense outposts, but not by a lot. Thirty-seven minutes lasted before all signals cut, except for the deepest military bunkers. They survived the longest of the lot at one galactic standard day, before the Terran military kicked down the door and cut the final communication from the system. In that time, they had taken out three other systems, and the Favja were increasingly getting worried, because the Terran battering ram was heading straight for the Giorgio Prime of the Favja home system. The good thing from the losses was that the Favja were getting more information about the Terran attack. First, the main front was the Favja, nicknamed the Planet Killer. This charge was the front that would destroy everything in its path and lay the way for the capture front which cleared the planets and made sure that the main front was well supplied with goods and ammunition. The big surprise was that the Terrans used projectile weapons that can only be countered with thick armor, unlike lasers, which a good enough shield would block. The Favja panicked to thicken their armor on the warships and move every asset they could to the Georgia Prime system to try and hold out one last hurrah. But to the Favja's surprise, when the Terrans finally arrived at Georgia Prime, they moved around it and to the neighboring systems. Thus, real panic began, as those in the know realized that the Terrans were going to perform an encirclement of Georgia Prime system. Every being in the system scrambled to make either a speedy exit or bunkered down in readiness for a fight. Weeks passed, and the Terrans stayed outside the Georgia Prime system before the Terran ambassador called a sudden emergency meeting of the Galactic Conglomerate. As you all know, the Terran Republic has been at war with the Favja Empire. We want to hold on to our promises and offer peace only if the Favja surrender unconditionally to Terran forces. If our demands for peace are not met, we will destroy the entire Georgia system, 
home of 58 billion Favja. Plus, with the George or star going supernova once we are done, the death toll could exceed 100 billion and plunge what's left of the Favja empire into turmoil. So, does the Favja ambassador accept the surrender? The Terran spoke as she commanded the whole room. All eyes turned to where the Favja ambassador was meant to be sitting, but was only an intern. What happened to your ambassador? The high speaker. He shot himself when he received the order for an emergency meeting, saying how this was a Terran backing us into a corner. The intern stuttered out, Hear me. Well, intern, you are now that ambassador to your people, and thus you have to accept or decline the Terran's peace offer, the high speaker said, saddened at the news. At this, the intern said okay before collapsing. Suddenly, the Favjo's direct line to the leadership started to ring as the Favjo queen was calling to accept the terms of the deal. So the great army surrounding Georgia Prime retreated to the human territories, leaving only one message in his wake. May we hope that the giant of war may never awake. But we all saw the might of the giant and the power it wields. May it only grumble and snore in its long sleep. For we must all strive to keep it asleep. One day it might once again walk this earth to spite us all. We must learn from our mistakes so the giant can rest again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1726 Story number one, Taking Stock, written by Hypothetical Shugoth Sir, I'm gonna have to cut you off. The presumably sapient creature somehow slithered up the bar seat to bring its vocalization orifice and sensory cluster to bear on the barkeep's general direction and ground out the litany that was either heavily accented, gull-standard, or the result of the evening's consumption causing internal damage to synthetic plumbing. At this point, the bartender was willing to bet either way. A fair point, this customer, but you've reached the absolute limit of the credit you pre-purchased for the evening, according to the price shift. More plumbing issues, goggling, grinding, but clearly interrogative. Several rounds on the house and peak capacity hours, most of our top shelf imbibables for various biochemistries, our entire bottom shelf, half of our stock of cleaning supplies, the tears of several entities who fell before you in drinking contests, and another you bullied into submission with the least of your manipulated digits. The flask of engine cleaner, a ship's mechanic brought in, two flasks of engine coolant, a full ewer of something the prior owner referred to as quantum liquid condensate. Interrogative grumble. Yes, really, and our entire stock of garnish produce and the garnish invertebrates, sir. You said you liked how crunchy they are. The entity paused, face puckering, then nodded. Please, smug plumbing noises. About the only thing that's been put in front of you was that one Terran intoxicant we received on consignment and haven't been able to use for more than thermal mass in our coolers. That refused it, even when you had to go best of three in getting anything else into your consumption orifice. The creature seemed to become more lucid at the mention of the substance, blurting out something that sounded somewhat like a psh, in haughty, high, gull standard. Given the creature should either be dead, combusting, or scattered across five dimensions and eight more hypothetical ones, 
due to what it consumed over the course of the day. The lucidity had been an apparent coincidence. So yes, you are cut off. The only reason you're still in here at all is because I don't know whether to call you a taxi, a peace officer, an ambulance, or an exorcist. Any suggestions? Not a drink. Oh, by the stars, that was practically coherent. <laughs> Holy water got with right deterrent it is. Uh, fine. The creature staggered to its feet, rifling through its pockets, getting lost repeatedly, and pulled out a generous but not exorbitant credgity, confirming the intent to transfer with more dexterity than it had been showing earlier. Whatever the creature was, it seemed possessed of an uncommonly robust constitution. The bartender hoped it would make it to the clinic or its lodgings before exploding or otherwise expiring. Before you leave, I have to ask, what kicked this off? Loss. An attempt to kill yourself. The creature paused, wavering at the door to the bar, a manic gleeful expression flooding out across its face, and it pulled out a specimen flask. Light played across the container for a brief moment, and a singularity was plainly visible inside, caught and held by an unfathomable forces that keep such jars' contents absolutely secure. All that for a black hole, I mean, sure. They have a fair amount of energy, but... The bartender broke off. The corona around the minuscule object wasn't right for that. No, 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 no. It's a wormhole. Was drinking to success. Am going home to terror. The creature pointed with absolute certainty off into space. Enlightenment all on the bartender. Terror. The stuff of cheap action movies and cheaper trade goods that people still bought from some reason. Human space was two arms away, and even with the best rifters at the helm, such a journey would take over a decade. A shortcut home would be a treasure, indeed. Safe journeys then, friend, and maybe we'll be seeing more of your kind here, if you've got that worked out. A stable wormhole between the arms would indeed be a treasure beyond reckoning. Many governments and trade organizations would give considerable limbs, auxiliary offspring, or, if forced, credits to possess or even have access to such a thing. Goodbye, I I'll be back. The man toddled off at the bar, leaving the bartender thoughtfully cleaning. If more of his kind were going to be turning up and drinking like that, the profits were going to be spiking. But the cellar would need to be expanded to become a full warehouse. Much to do. Much to do. End of chapter. Story number two. A Captain's Duty. Written by a guy called C. All hands abandoned ship. I want you in an escape pod and off this boat in five minutes. Captain Booker of the Peregrine shouted over the intercom. It hurts to give the order. He had been flying for 43 years, and when he had purchased the Peregrine eight years ago and turned her into a faster freighter in the 10-sector radius, he never would have thought that he would lose her. The Shikar ship had pulled them from wharf, dwarfed the Peregrine easily ten times her size, and had them hopelessly outgunned. A ship built for war targeting a freighter that was harmless in comparison. Booker had lost nearly half of his crew in the warship opening salvos targeting the Peregrine's meager weapon systems when several decks were opened to vacuum. He had lost another third when the secondary reactor was breached and went critical. With life support barely keeping atmosphere in the uncompromised corridors, he wasn't even sure if the handful of crew that he had given the orders to evacuate 
had even received it, but he would do everything in his power to buy them time to get off his ship. He would do his duty, pushing the primary reactor past any parameters that could be considered safe. He fed all the power he could to the forward particle shield and the engines to continue maneuvering, making the ship a more difficult target to hit. While peppering the Shakar shields uselessly with the ship's only remaining accelerator cannon turret, he knew his efforts were incompletely in vain. The Peregrine was already in her death throes, but his crew needed every second they could get. After what felt like an eternity of dodging fire and futilely returning it, the intercom crackled to life. Cap, uh, it's Wilkins. Uh, I've reached the uh, escape pod. Uh, everyone else uh, already and ejected. Make your way, pod, and... Ah, oh, feck out of here. Booker let out a sigh of relief. He had managed to save at least some of his crew. He could take solace in that at least. He opened the drawer under his console and pulled out a bottle of scotch that he'd bought with his first pay he had earned flying. It would seem his retirement would be short-lived indeed, and it would be a sin to let the forty-year-aged scotch go to waste. He opened the scotch, took a long draw from the bottle, and lamented that he wouldn't be able to share it with his friends. Corking the bottle and returning the empty bottle to its drawer, he quickly and clumsily donned one of the bridge's vac suits. He powered down the peregrine's life support. He was alone and needed the power the system drew. He powered off all the ship's lighting. He needed the power. He strapped into his crash couch and powered off the grav generator. He needed the power. He dropped the particle shield. They had stopped firing, and he needed the power. He powered down the neutered weapon system. He needed the power. The Shakar ship's sensors picking up that the systems of the Peregrine were beginning to fail one by one, began to move in to pick the once proud bird's bones clean. Booker vented a few pressurized compartments left to the ship to slowly tumble the nose of the Peregrine to the alien ship. Easy, easy, too fast and they'll catch on. Finally, with one last burst of atmosphere from the starboard cargo bay, the ship was pointed in the correct direction. Mocha pushed the reactor to the point of meltdown and shunted every ounce of power left in the Peregrine systems to the engines. He wouldn't need the power anymore. When the Peregrine hit the Shakar ship, she was moving at three quarters the speed of light. The alien ship could dissipate the energy of the accelerated cannon rounds going that fast. But... It could never hope to hold against 10,000-ton bullet. From the view screen of his escape pod, Wilkins watched distantly as the crippled peregrine roared to life one last time, her engines burning brighter than they ever had in life. And then she slammed into the enemy ship. The ship's fields fell instantly, and the freighter impacted warship in a muted fireball that for a few moments shone brighter than the system star. Hopelessly outgunned, hilariously outclassed, even in death, Captain Robert Booker would never be outmatched. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1727 Story number one, written by Weijin Warrior. A very human dilemma. Human Josh came to my bar again. He often does when stationside. As my bar is one of the few that have a trained staff, the security measures, and the fume extractors required to get a license for serving C2H5OH, 
a solvent for most races, a fuel for some, but for humans, it is a drink. But lately, human Josh has been coming by more often and consuming more. And not just the fermented grain product either, but the distilled liquid a few brave traders bring in their holds. So this time, after the bar was near empty, I sat down across from him and coaxed the human into talking. I could not let my best customer and biggest straw drink himself to termination. Friend Josh, I said in my best interlanguia, now you traveled. Would engaging in conversation help? He looked at me and smiled. The thing humans do with their mouths, but thankfully, did not show teeth. Friend, barkeep, he said, as he showed me a set of hollow crystals spread in front of him. What is a man to do? One may win, but the rest must lose. I looked at the crystals. Each of them displayed a female form of various species and genders. I kept my eyes on them as my secondary eyes glanced back up at the human. Who do I love? Josh said. I'll leave a lot of girls singing the blues. I ignored the reference to color. Humans put a lot of effort into colors, but none of it made sense to me. Instead, I pointed to the closest crystal, assuming that if I kept him talking, he would say something that was understandable. Ah, Nama, Josh said in a low voice. Meet her in a spaceport bar much like this one. Red as the sands of Mars, hungry to go out and explore. Just like me. Isn't all Messer Jacks red? I replied, trying to grok where this was going. Not like Nama. Josh stared at nothing for a while, then reached for a different crystal. Adelaide, Queen of Colony 3, Josh said, his voice sounding different, rich as a poor man's dream. Hey, Molesrow, I see Colony 3 is, uh, Hogwarts? Spine-wise, Josh corrected. She could have had anyone, but she chose me. Ah, who do I love? Something stirred in my lower thorax as the human Josh talked. Unease, or just hunger. It was hours past my last meal, was it not? Human Josh got more animated as he kept talking. He grabbed another crystal to show me. El Belleran, yes, she is a Nebulan. Runs... Her very own ship easily makes 10,000 credits each trip and is, well, oh, energetic in the sleep pod too, if you know what I mean. I didn't. I didn't tell the human Josh that I didn't. Instead, I refilled his drink. Zell is the princess of world Kainon, he said as he showed me yet another crystal. Wild, officially undiscovered, wants to put me on a continent's throne for my knowledge and skills. That would make it hard to come here for drinks, then, if her planet isn't approved. True, Josh said as he drank the drink. But who do I love? He paused for a few seconds as his single pair of eyes scanned the crystal. Now Ola, oh, Ola, priestess of the great Zod's Oracle. I've heard of Zod. The Vabian Scions God, is it not? Josh nodded. She chose me against all odds, I mean... Biological incapabilities aside, hers and my children would be gods as well. Ah, <sighs> who do I love? I refilled each drink again, but held my tongue. Gods simply had no place in rational universe, but most sentients are irrational. Yashubal, my uh, Gaia Fishy lass. 
Josh exclaimed as he reached out for the crystal featuring a figure wearing even less than most of the others. Not her given name, I take it? Not really, but I can't pronounce her real name. She has a third-rate ship, but a first-rate gluteus. I looked at the crystal. I looked at Josh. I had my neural implant run the word search. I don't think the guy fists have a muscle analog to the human. He waved at my ejection. I refilled his drink again. And then, Josh continued, as he reached for the last crystal. There is Virdalia, my warrior queen. Ah, an Edoak, yes, uh, with weapons in all four hands, she looks very much like a warrior. Best physique I've ever seen, Josh replied, with a clean conscience and a fierce love, too. The Edoak are fierce in all they do, I believe. Josh was quiet for a while. I followed his lead. Finally, he sighed, the human not-word they used when frustrated, angry, or disappointed. You think it's easy, he said as he swept his hand over the seven hollow crystals. Well, maybe you would, but I have more choices than one man should. There is such a thing as too much good. Who do I love? I refilled his drink, and Josh drank his drink. So here I sit, he said, on a decision's brink. It's growing late, and it's hard to think. It is getting late, I agreed, after scanning the now-empty bar. But humans always seem to think all the time. You might as well bring another bottle, Josh said, in a tone I recognized as resigned. Who do I love? What should I do? I looked at the human Josh. I looked closer at him as he was staring at the collection of hollow crystals. I tried to arrange my mouth into a human smile, spreading my dorsal fins wide for him. I felt my skin grow purple as blood rushed through my outer capillaries. Well, I said as I shifted closer, you could take up an offer of half ownership in my bar. End of story. Story number two. Unthinking, written by Discordant Sky. The ship's medbay was dark, lit only by the backup lighting, and the small emergency lamp she'd taken with her didn't help much. There was only one occupant, bedridden and strapped in so as to not float away in the null G. His skin was mottled and sunburned, looking and weeping sores covered a large part of his body. The pus leaking from them, seeping into the sheets that were tightly wrapped around him. Occasionally, the globular ball of blood pus would separate and slowly float away on the air currents created by the air recyclers. His eyes swam around the room aimlessly for a moment, before slowly focusing on her towering form. The human started before losing track of her for a moment, before refocusing a bit more lucidly. Captain! His voice was reedy, a weak phlegm-filled rasp. His lungs must have been half full of the same pus leaking from the rest of his body. The ship's medic had warned her about this. Without thrust, there was no gravity, and without gravity, the fluids were pooling in his body and not draining out like they should. Pneumonia. They described the symptoms to her. She'd known what to expect before she walked in. But seeing it was a different matter. He was drowning. But even without that, he'd be gone soon anyway. The pneumonia was just a symptom of what was really killing him. How are you? She immediately cringed at the question. Any pain, she said, trying to save herself. 
He blinked at her slowly before nodding. A little, but the docks got me pretty juiced up. He let out what could have been a wet cough or an attempt to laugh. <laughs> I think he's got me on every painkiller there is. She couldn't only, hmm, in response to that. He weakly nodded at the termalities above her bed. Can't get the call back up. She felt ice run down her spine at the human's question. We are working on it. Should be a few more hours, she lied. Despite the medications and the decrepit state of his body, the man still managed to see through it. Don't ride away, Captain. I'd say you owe me that. I did save the ship after all, he laughed. Besides, you're horrible at it. The car is gone. Total loss in containment and the magnetic bottle controls are shot. If you hadn't shut it down, we would have lost the ship, she said, looking at the deck. So I was right, he stated before devolving into a coughing fit. Told that very bastard that we did couldn't run that call that art for that long. You never have gotten along with Hulak, have you? she asked. No, can't really say that I ever really cared for him, he said. She hated herself for asking, but she had to know. Then, uh, why did you toss him out? Then he'd be right here with me, he said simply. But he could have helped you at least, she said. Could have, the human agreed. But I knew what I needed doing, and I knew that I could do it myself. He said and fell into a coffin foot, little globules of bloody mucus escaping between his fingers, and tears began pooling on his face in zero-g. He might have been an ass, but it doesn't mean that we both had to die like this. She'd watched the video a dozen times. The pair of them had been heading down to the reactor compartment, a customary argument already trucking along between the two of them when the radiation alarm had begun to blare from their hand terminals and from the ship's speakers. They both pulled their terminals from their pockets and then shared a quick glance at each other, and then the door behind him as it began to close before the human grabbed a fistful of Hulak's uniform and spun on the spot and tossed him through the rapidly closing hatch. I just did it, the human continued, a wet cough punctuating the sentence as his eyes glossed over. Didn't have a... Uh, didn't even think about it. I, it just happened. They were silent for a time before she spoke again. He uh, wants to talk to you, she ventured. The dying man waved a weak hand at her. Later. I'll let you get some rest then, she said, and moved towards the exit. She had her hand on the light switch when the man's voice stopped her. Leave them be, he said, his voice oddly strong, but tinged with something she couldn't place. I... I don't want to... He paused for a moment, as if catching himself from saying something he didn't want to. I... I don't want to go home in the dark. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1728 Humans are high maintenance, written by Chronic Boom. Humans are rule breakers. I mean, ugh, wait. Ignore the title for a microcycle. I'm just trying to set the stage for what I'm trying to convey to you all. So basically, a little while ago, I was assigned a human roommate in the university we go to. I already know him quite well from some of my classes, but I'd never actually lived with him. I don't really know how to explain it all to you, but I was frankly baffled. By the way, I wouldn't consider myself all that unfamiliar or inhumans at all. After all, I once did a presentation on human space piracy, and I'd like to think I did fairly well. 
I guess I should give some background information first, so, uh, my human friend, let's call him, uh, um, a computer, uh, what's a common human name? Okay, let, let's call him, uh, Bob. So, so Bob is a refugee of Earth, and he and his family decided that they wanted to stay on the planet they got relocated to, trying to live their lives normally again. Of course, Bob decided that he wanted to continue his studies that he was unable to finish back on Earth. I've known Bob for quite some time. At least a few circular motions around the planet star. We've become fast friends, and I decided that it would be a good idea if I transferred to his dorm for the next semester. I ran it by him, and he also agreed that it would be a good idea. But some of my other friends were saying that it was a bad idea, and that humans were weird. Now, I am a yuck which is apparently quite reminiscent of to a peacock for humans who aren't caught up on your sapient species. And the point is, none of my friends were a yak. Each one of them would say something about humans, that I'd more or less understand being strange to that particular species. My jock friend found it weird that they were hairless, saying that it reminded them a lot of their babies, and they said that humans had weird gender roles. My zower friend, said that they were overly aggressive and was worried that Bob would hurt me in some way. My Kadeshi friend simply thought that humans were too unpredictable, too chaotic. Jock have dominant females while humans have dominant males, and of course humans are furless while Jock are completely covered in fur. Zawa are extraordinarily peaceful, so from their perspective humans must look like barbarians and Kadesh are proportionately unadaptive compared to most other species. So, of course, the most adaptive species known so far would be considered chaotic. Three things influenced my decision not to listen to them. One was that I knew Bob better than any of them had. I thought that I knew Bob well enough to not be surprised by anything. And also, none of the, what they said really sounded all that strange to me. But that's what I mean when I say that humans are rule breakers. You seem determined to break any preconceived rule that any species has about you. Well, I suppose what I'm talking about isn't necessarily a rule, but to me, it's just weird. Basically, when I tried asking Bob about all of his uh, strangeness, he just said, ask HFY. And of course, that was no help. But here I am, well, that and because I guess I like your stories. To be honest... I think Bob was just poking fun at my liking HFI, but I decided to take it seriously and see if any of you could offer an explanation. Tell me just a quirk of Bob and what is actually stuff that every human does all the time. So I suppose here is the little title comes in. When I first moved in, everything was perfectly fine. We hung out for a while, talking about our marks in our different classes, watched a few shows, you know, just hung out. But then came the time for us to go to bed. I was just about to head to my room when I noticed that Bob wasn't doing the same. Instead, I found him in the bathroom with his uh, the weird stick in his mouth. When I asked him what he was doing, he just said, brushing my teeth. I didn't really understand why he was brushing his teeth, but I mostly just passed it off as a human thing. So I went to bed, and for the most part, everything was fine. But then came morning. I got up and was just about to head to the door for our classes, but then Bob called up to me saying, wasn't ready. I asked him what he meant, and he said that he'd had to get ready for the day. What is that even supposed to mean? 
How are you supposed to get ready for the day? I decided that I would just wait and see, but then he went back to the bathroom and started brushing his teeth again. I was suspecting that he was doing it for cleaning, but then why would he clean his teeth twice without even eating anything? Also, why would he be doing it so frequently? It's not like his teeth are going to fall out if they doesn't brush them for a week. So, uh, when he finished, I once again started heading for the door, but once again, he said that he wasn't done. Now I was confused. What else would he need to do to <clears throat> get ready for the day? Well, as it turns out, a lot. First, he decided to have a shower. Now, of course, that isn't weird. But at the moment specifically, really? I thought we were going to be late for class. Is he just a clean freak? When I was sitting beside him yesterday, he smelled and looked fine. It didn't seem like he needed to clean himself so much. I asked him about that as well and he said that it was because he didn't like his hair greasy. Again, how in the name of existence could he have gotten grease in his hair in the middle of the night? I didn't hear him leave his room, and I don't know where he would have found any grease to begin with. Also, why is he pouring grease in his hair? I gotta be honest, it did pass my mind to simply go and meet him there, but he's my friend. I shouldn't just abandon him, even if it resulted in us both being late. So again, I thought that he was done, but oh, how I was wrong. He had to eat breakfast, as he called it. He had to shave his face for some reason. He had to put on a deodorant. Oh, and then he had to take his medications. I don't know what his medications did, but he didn't seem all that defective to me. But there were like four bottles, all different types of pills, and whatever else. He also said that he was taking some vitamins as well. But I can't make any sense out of that. Why would he need to take vitamins? Doesn't he get enough of that from just living? Maybe all this medication is for his smell? He doesn't smell bad. I, I don't understand why he's so self-conscious about it. If he didn't make himself smell like flowers, it wouldn't really have been that bad. Is this something that I should be concerned about? Why is he putting in so much effort just to be leave the dorm room? Should I ever talk to him about it? It's almost like he's afraid to go outside sometimes. Speaking of which, even that is a problem, apparently. First, he has to put on sunscreen, as he calls it, or else he'll burn. That's gotta be fake, right? He's just messing with me at this point, right? Do any of you do this as well? Because frankly, I find it extremely hard to believe that he will combust into flames if he doesn't put on a special cream. Regardless, he treated it like it would, almost religiously applying it to his bare skin. Then... He was to wear special clothes. Now, this one I do understand better than the others. You humans are basically naked. I can understand why you need to cover up with the colder climates. But that just raises even more questions. Why would Bob move to a planet where the temperature is uncomfortable for him? I don't think that his options were limited. Even then, he could simply decide to live closer to the equator. This is bad. Like, could it be that his family is abusing him? It doesn't seem moral to me that his parents decided to move to a place where he would be perpetually uncomfortable. I'd appreciate it if one of you could let me know in the comments, because I'm a little concerned for him. At first, it was just an annoyance, but now, it's almost like he's trying not to be human. Why does he want to get rid of his normal smell? Why doesn't he trust his body to take care of him? Why would he move somewhere where his body is telling him he shouldn't be? I honestly don't understand. 
He's just laughing it off whenever I bring it up with him. But it frankly seems completely ridiculous. The world we both live in is known for its mountains. I decided to take a course here because the climate was much like my home world. Same temperature, same gravity, same issues. My body is capable of living here without any problems. I prune myself when I want to get clean. I eat only when I get hungry. And for the most part, I simply let my body do what it needs to do. Bob, though, is so strange. How are you humans supposed to work? Naturally, I mean. I'll admit, I don't know too much about Earth, but I have heard that it has been quite diverse in its climates and ecosystems. What's the natural equivalent of brushing your teeth? Did you, uh, I don't know, scrape them with rocks or something? In fact, I still don't understand why they need to be cleaned in the first place. I would expect that food you eat would be fine for your teeth, not cause them to rot, or whatever Bob is afraid of. I feel like I'm getting a bit off track. Basically, I'd really appreciate it if one of you could explain what's going on. Whatever Bob is doing doesn't seem natural to me, and I don't know if I should be worried or not. I feel like this post is getting a little lengthy at this point, for simple question, so I'll just rapid fire some of the more strange things I've seen him do. Thanks in advance. He has to get a haircut every few months. He has to go to the dentist to see if he's cleaned his teeth correctly. He has to have regular checkups with the doctor to see if his body parts are working correctly. He picks his nose for some reason, sometimes blows it into a paper brag, but only in rare cases. He puts on lip balm on the dry seasons. He has to cut his nails. He has to comb his hair. He has to cook his food, or else he'll get sick. He has to wear this weird glass eye frame when he reads. He has to exercise, or else he'll be unhealthy. He has to do his laundry, even if his clothes aren't visibly dirty. He has to wear socks to put on shoes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1729 Story number one. An opportunity written by Svanya Vartsen. Sarah walked through the city, toting a pack half her size. An alien out of place. Everything marked her as different. She was short, had a full head of dark brown curls, skin that was often referred to as porcelain, and two forward-facing, bright blue eyes. Her two arms swung as she bounced in the light gravity on her two legs. The people she walked past, or and I, shot her looks ranging from curiosity to thinly veiled disgust. Humans weren't completely unknown to the Laneth, but as far as Sarah could tell, she was the only one who'd ventured past the main port area. She was certainly the only non-Oranai in the university. The Oranai were all two meters or taller, four eyes set to the set of 270-degree view. Two large, three-jointed arms ending in large, six-fingered hands below two smaller, two-jointed arms with finer, six-fingered hands. They walked on four limbs and reminded her of hairless blue centaurs. She had been here long enough to tell the males and females apart, although the differences were subtle, given the flowing, robe-like garments they all wore that covered everything from their upper shoulders to all four of their ankles. One male shot her a look of open disdain, so she greeted him formally. May this turning sky bring you gifts from the mothers. She smiled without showing her teeth. Showing teeth was an uncontrollable reaction to fear amongst their kind. The man snorted in the way only an Orinai can, expelling all the air from his massive lungs out the two large slits that made up his nose. 
The resulting flapping of the covers was close to the sound Sarah made when she puffed out her cheeks and flapped her lips. Seeing how it always made her doormates laugh, she responded to the large man in kind. He didn't seem amused. Switching to informal speech, Sarah said, Still, I hope you have a good turning. I would hate to think that I'd ruined your day. She gave a slight bow and walked on. As much as she enjoyed exploring, she had to art supplies and snacks she'd gone out for and decided to head back to the university. A soft sound drew her attention to a dark alley beside a quiet bar. In any equivalent-sized city on Earth, Sarah would never venture down a dark alley. Here, though, she had no cause for concern. She walked down the alley, looking for the source of the sound, walking past the trash receptacles she caught movement from the corner of her eye. There was Oranai huddled in the shadow, his teeth showing. Sarah sat down cross-legged, her side to the mail, and looked down the alley. She learned that when Oranai was frightened, staring at it didn't help the situation. I'm not going to hurt you, she said. My name's Sarah. What's yours? Donma. His voice was just above a whisper. I'm very pleased to meet you, Donma. By turning her eyes to the side, she could see that his limbs were exposed from their oversized and tattered robe were little more than skin and bones. Do you have a place to go? No, no, this, this, this is home. I can see that you're still uneasy around me, she said. I'll leave you to your peace, but I'd like to see you again later, if that's okay. Yes, you can. Sarah made for the dorms and the bounding low-gravity loaf that enabled her cover large distances in a quick, efficient manner. She burst through the door into a dorm and tossed a pack on the sleeping area. Her dorm mate jumped at the noise and turned, her teeth showing for a split second. Sarah, what's gotten into you? S Sorry I startled you, Harry, um, but uh, could you take me shopping? I thought you just went at the human commissionery at the docks, but I need you to take me shopping like an Oranai, please. Aramella, uh, why not? I'm not doing anything else. It was Sarah's first trip to the shopping center. She'd passed by before but hadn't gone in for fear that she might violate some cultural taboo. Today was different though. She had a guide. What do you want to see first? Arimala asked. A robe for a male about your size, but skinny. Arimala clasped her four hands together and tilted her head. Oh, has some young male captured your attention? Uh, kind of, Sarah said, but not like that. Sarah picked out a simple robe, but well made from warm, thick fabric. In the same shop she found a blanket to buy as well. Her purchaser slung over her shoulder. She followed Arimala back out to the main promenade of the shopping center. Where to next? Arimala asked. Food. Hungry? We can eat at the restaurants by the entrance. They have human-compatible food too. Sarah cut her off. Not for me, and not for now. Food for later. Stuff that doesn't have to be cooked or heated up. Want to stock up the dorm? You don't have to do that, Harry, please. Okay, let's go to the grocery, wait. Is this for the mystery mail? Yes. But, are you proposing to this mail? Buying clothes, household goods, and food is a way you ask someone to join your family. I'm not proposing. He needs this. I'm sure he'll get it. It took a bit of convincing, but Sarah got Aramala to help her fill the bags with a mix of healthy, tasty foods and not-so-healthy snacks. The cashier wouldn't take Sarah's money, you can't eat any of this, he said. I can't sell this to you. Fine, Sarah said. She handed her money to Aramala. She's buying it. The cashier shrugged his lower shoulders and agreed to sell the food to Aramala. Do you need any help carrying that out, he asked. 
Sarah grabbed all three bags in one hand and hefted them up. Nope, I can handle it. Arumala looked at Sarah, confusion obvious. Now, I really need to meet this male that you said you're setting up a house without setting up a house. Good. Do you know how to get to the bar by the dorms from here? The ones that's closed almost all the time. Oh yeah. It's only open on holidays, but it's the only bar in the area open then. Marimala pointed to a road to their side. Head a short way down that road. They walked past the bar and Sarah walked into the alley. Marimala following behind her. Donma, you here? It's Sarah. Sarah? She set the bags down and sat a short distance away. I brought you some things. You looked hungry. Why? Like I said, you looked hungry. And you looked like you could use a new robe. And maybe a blanket. Are you trying to family me? I'm not good enough for that. No, nothing like that, Sarah said. I'm sorry if I broke some sort of cultural taboo by buying you food and clothing and a blanket. Aramala leaned down and whispered into her ear. Why are you giving this male all these things? Do you know him from somewhere? Yeah. I met him here just before I got back to the dorms. That's not what I meant. Sarah made a lip-flapping sound at her, making both Aura and I laugh. What must I do to pay you back? Donma asked. Enjoy the food, wear the clothing, keep warm with the blanket. Other than that, just take care of yourself. I'll keep coming back to check on you until you're back on your feet. How, how is that payment? He asked. Sarah stood and straightened her back. Listen, I have a good life. I grew up with plenty and never wanted for food or shelter or anything. I'm in a position where I can help someone less fortunate. So I will. If I walked away knowing I could have helped but didn't, I would hate myself. So thank you for the opportunity to feel like a decent person. At least for today. End of story. Story number two. The Phoenix Planet, written by Monarch357. It made no sense. Of course, the beginning did. Many single systems, beings strike at the great filter of mutual nuclear annihilation. It just happens. And there isn't much that can be done beyond cataloging the planet and salvaging what can be saved. This pattern was followed from the formation of the first supernational galactic union and throughout the next thousands of years. Then we found the outliers. They weren't a single system power, no tragedy occurring before a society breaks the bindings of sublight travel and touches the stars. No, not even close. It was the humans. Our brothers from close to the beginning, the galactic peacekeepers, the innovators. They had purged their own home with the scouring light of thermonuclear weaponry and risen from the crumbling ruins. We met the humans emerging from a system nowhere near the outliers we discovered so recently. Their new home, what we thought was their true origin, was almost identical to the world that they destroyed. And they seized it with the desperation of a dying animal. They pushed on through the irradiated ruins of their ground, their cradle, and found a new home for themselves amongst the stars. If they had a choice, they would never have left, but the new home called, and their old one pushed them away. The humans had lost their cradle, Earth, as they called it, due to the petty growing pains of an ununified civilization escalating into near-omnicide. With a decimated population, barely a single percent compared to before the calamity, the survivors hid underground, biding their time, 
They waited for when their home could be saved, when the atmosphere no longer killed those with a vicious poison of radiation. They returned to work. The most brilliant left finished the near-completed FTL drive and built their ship. Taking a shot in the dark, the vessel barely had the resources and fuel for a one-way trip. If this failed, everything was lost. The survivors bid farewell to Earth, leaving behind the jewel that had grown them from evolutionary infancy, and prayed that what they found would be worth the loss. The primitive drive had barely enough to establish a colony. The surviving humans lived off the tiny remnants, what had not been consumed by the brutal voyage into the deep unknown, and returned to the barbaric lifestyle that had been abandoned for hundreds of thousands of years. Relying on an unsteady cycle of rough crop growth and hunting, it was not easy. The already tiny fragment was crushed further, to barely a hundred thousand. They perished, of course. Failure was not an option. Loss would insult the billions who passed to let the small fraction live. The new world acted as a temporary blip, while the humans focused on shooting to the stars once again. Their blind jump could have placed them anywhere in the galaxy. But they were determined, determined to find their home again, and determined to undo the failure of their predecessors in letting their cradle fall to ruin. It took years for this to happen, which is when we found them. Their mission was never shared to anyone else. They doubted that we would understand the motives behind such a fervent exploration. And we found Earth for them. It was classed as another tomb, and we dove down onto the surface to salvage what we could. The world was remarkably intact for a tomb, and we discovered the origin of humanity. On the other side of their new home, this was reported to them last month. And today, a fleet left their new home. The passage of a thousand years did not dampen their will. Their crater world will be rebuilt yet. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1730 Story number one. A moment written by Discordant Sky. Being an AI has its perks, one of which was being able to enjoy the irony of the situation in the microseconds of life that remained. Petulant rock-throwing monkeys. That's what the Lord of Admirals had called the humans after the first engagement of the war. It had been a hard-fought victory for the Imperium and the devastatingly horrid loss for humanity. Five long years of intersystem battle, and almost as long on the ground. Once the orbital war had been decided in the Imperium's favor, they thought that the humans on the ground would capitulate. But flying in the face of all sense, the humans on the ground had dug in and dared them to come in after them. The Lord Admiral's comment had been a reference to the video captured from a hull-mounted camera in the closing engagements of the battle. It showed forces of the Imperium engaged in brutal room-to-room -room fighting in a command bunker. The wearer of the camera rounded a corner on a duo of humans who immediately opened fire on the wearer. Their PDWs incapable of harming the powered armor-clad Imperial soldier. There was a flash of light and a roar as the Gatling gun built into the forearm of the suit came to life and punched for size holes in one of the humans. The surviving human's weapon clicked empty at the same time as the Imperials, and for a moment they stared at each other. Toronto! A synthesized voice came from the Imperial. The human continued to stare, then, quickly, he knelt down and hefted up a large piece of fallen concrete and chucked it 
at the Imperial's face. The hunk of masonry shattered on the impact with the reinforced glass of the helmet. The Imperial's reaction was to lunge towards the human and shove him with enough force to throw him into a far wall. The human hadn't gotten back up. The AI would have commented about the ironic nature of the oncoming destruction to surrounding members of the cabinet if there was time. But there wasn't much point, because everyone in the room would be dead in a few moments anyway. The AI was content to remain silent. The AI find it peculiar, looking out of the gathered mass that was the leadership of the Imperium. Things looked jovial. Earth, humanity's home, had been found, and a fleet like the likes of which had never been assembled was burning towards it, intent on subjugation of humanity. After nearly a century of beating them back towards their homeworld, it was almost over. They'd finally won, and yet, from the jaws of victory, defeat was a moment away. Better, yeah, I thought, not to crash the party. By chance, the full-spectrum telescope had been pointing in just the right direction to capture it. It began as a line of light, looking at the AI as a bolt of lightning that had been taken from the sky and hammered straight before being put back. It was brighter than the mid-morning sun and hot enough to ignite everything flammable in its line of sight. The AI tracked it as it made planetfall, whatever that was. It was fast. It made it from space to the ground in four-tenths of a second and slammed into the ocean. The shockwave would be like an earthquake, one bad enough to level most standing structures for thousands of kilometers around the impact site, and the pressure wave coming behind it at a speed of sound would probably circumnavigate the planet a dozen times. Not to mention the 300 kilometers an hour winds and 4 kilometer high tsunami that was now racing across the planet like the heralds of the apocalypse. The capital building was geographically on the other side of the planet, so they had a few hours to savor the onrushing Armageddon. At first, the AI had assumed that it was a product of random chance, once in a few million years extinct level event that just happened to come at the moment of their ultimate victory. A cosmological joke, the likes of which had never been seen. Then the second one came. Then the third. Then the fourth. Then the AI knew what was really happening, and it allowed itself a private laugh. <laughs> Petulant rock-throwing monkeys indeed, it thought, as a fifth hyper-accelerated rock slammed directly into the Capitol building. End of story. Story number two. Whiskey and Old Songs, written by Shura Not a Robot. In the dark, the soft ones came. We used to laugh at them. They had only four limbs, no shells, no claws and teeth that a cub would be ashamed of. Yet they came. His companion shivered. Many times they had heard the story, but still there was a tale for long nights and strong stomachs. The elder continued. We had taken one of them, just one to see if we could use them. He was old, nearly closer to death than I am now. We took him from the middle of nowhere, we thought. Simply a test. Back in my time, we thought of them as cattle. We bought and sold labor all the time. Who were these creatures to object? The elder took a deep drink and continued. But this one laughed at me, laughed at us. I still remember his words, words that finally burned our empire. He said, 
You're only seeing me. You are not seeing the people standing behind me. My death will be a thousand of your dead. My world will either kill you all or burn to ashes before we ever become slaves. The elder sighed. Of course, we killed him. No point in inviting that kind of species into the Empire. As his executioner, he spoke to me last, and it took long time before I understood what he'd muttered. At the time, execution was in public, so you had to shout, he said. My sons have sons as brave as are their fathers. This isn't over. This is the beginning. He took another drink. Well, of course, we ignored the whole thing. We were sent to another system, and I forgot about the whole thing. Getting Zeno's was my job. I stopped keeping track. Then they came. Of course, we didn't know who was attacking us. Our people just started dying. He took another deep draught of his drink. It carried on for an orbit, perhaps longer, before we knew our enemy. We had lost generals, overlords, and more before we caught and killed the first. A human. We ran a DNA test, just routine. Another criminal, we thought. It was the son of the one I had executed. His audience watched carefully before he resumed. Then they came. No huge armies, no great fleets. Just a rage that shook the very heavens. And it worked because our slaves were handed weapons. Our serfs were given lands. But they know mercy. Today, the grandson of the human I executed. Today, he gave me a gift. He drained his glass. Today, I don't die in public. End of story. Story number three. Thieves of Heaven, written by Lord Chup I'm 178 years old, and I remember when the skies of our world were pristine and clear and filled with glorious sunshine. Our world was a virgin experience for all who visited it. Friend, foe, strangers, all were equal, until a line was crossed. When a friend asked too much, when a foe swung too hard, when a stranger lurked too long and did not help when asked. It's not that we weren't the best of hosts. We just didn't know better, really. And that changed when the deny darkened our skies and made us rethink our policies entirely. They scattered the stellar debris around the world and kept it frozen in place, locking us in our pale blue dot. And our allies could do nothing to help, save for sending us laser-fueled pulses of energy to power our cities and stave off the inevitable demise of a world which cannot grow food enough to keep its inhabitants alive. We learned to live underground, to simulate starlight and sunshine and the comforts of the wind. It was too much of a heartbreak to see skies we knew weren't empty any longer, and that our prison cell was our world entire. We lost half of our people inside the two excruciating years, and most of our remaining animals. Life extension technology did flourish, though it felt like furthering our tenure in hell. Interplanetary trade vanished almost entirely, and we became ill in our souls. Humans do not do well with that illness. It makes us think things we should not think. 
Then some brilliant mind saw the use of that excess energy that we were receiving so regularly, beamed down on the top of every hour, and repurposed some discarded stellar communications equipment into something beautiful. We turned the communication lasers into a cannon and targeted the debris, scorching it out of existence, clearing fright lanes wide enough to admit our traffic, and then, well, we did what came naturally. We got better at it. No innovation can withstand the human impulse to improve it for no finer purpose than to simply do it. For posterity, sure, and for the benchmarks alone, of course. And then, that stubborn instinct to just make something awful, and beautiful, and then powerful, out of what simply worked. It's how we move from spears to shotguns and particle beam weapons, and why we learn peace as a profession. We traveled the stars for a while, and united angry coalitions into mighty fortresses of soul and mind. Combined industries into cartels, cartels into blocks, blocks into nation-states of digital cash, and law, and newfound powers. Then the deny trapped us on our world as punishment for doing some indecipherable crime against them. We asked, so, so many times, and they always gave us the same reply. What did we do to deserve this? And to that, always the same words. You brought this on yourselves. And so the Denai retreated when we rallied our forces. We gathered allies enough to exit our world for good, save for the caretakers of it. To best preserve our heritage and defend our pale blue dot against future incursions. And then we did what came naturally. We went looking for a fight. We'd been peacemakers for fifty years, and those unions tended to last at least that long, and some looked to be ready to embrace centuries of progressive co-growth. We had an arsenal enough to keep us in a war business for generations, ships fast enough to take it where we wished, and only one world was our target. All others knew to step lively to the side and give us our due and proper space. Now... We are above this pale green dot, surrounded by the wreckage of their four moons, harvesting them for metal and minerals, fueling our efforts to their own planetary bodies. Their world is trapped beneath layers of debris, clouds thicker than anything they ever inflicted on their enemies. Those enemies were happy to help us, and still do, as they have been for most of the last century. In less than a month, the final phase of the project will begin, and we will finish what they started. It's expected to take at least two dozen years to fulfill it, yet I hope I am alive to see that blessed day. The plates are only six meters thick, though they are still several thousand miles long and hundreds wide. We will enclose their world beneath them, and keep it secured, locked away forever, and broadcast their noises to the surrounding area, and boost the signal to better inform their dwindling allies of what we are doing. The Denai gloated about our punishment enough, after all. We all remember the laughter of those allies of theirs. They tried to turn our world into a symbol of suffering. We're turning theirs into a spherical warning sign. Do not feck with us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1731 Black Dogs, written by For Use It Works Sergeant-at-arms Quirier tried to make sense of the blaring alarm that jarred him out of his sleep. His still fuzzy brain slowly comprehended 
that it was his shift alarm. He had gone into his third phase of loudness. If he had allowed it to go to the fourth phase, it would raise the lights by 150% normal and get louder yet. He couldn't remember the last time he had slipped through the first phase. If this didn't end soon, he thought, he might end up molting early from stress. Fifteen minutes and one slow-release caffeine microdose tablet later, he made his way from the corner of the light transport's tiny cargo bay that was turned into a makeshift double bunk. He found the scent of the ship slightly offensive to his olfactory stalks. The small craft stunk of both him and his human crewmate. The odor offended Korea. The aftertaste of the emergency rations offended Korea. The four-hour-on, four-hour-off emergency shift rotation offended Korea. His normally quiet and orderly Italy's science sweet survey cruiser, M.R.A. Amarian, being unceremoniously lanked out of hyperspace into a previously unknown spatial doldrum and communications dead zone, offended Korea. It offended Korea, not even ancient means of visual navigation were usable as no stars could be seen through the shifting spectral wisps of blue and green, whatever the hell that it was that was traveling through. Korea fumes stalked through the narrow passages to the bridge. Oddly enough, the only thing that wasn't defending Korea at the moment was the other being on the ship. Engineering technician first-ranked Justin Skursky was usually slightly more offensive than the usual human. From Korea's point of view, anyway, Engineer Skursky's nonsensical and chaotic, AI, very human behavior directly countered Korea's sense of routine and order. The experience was different, though. Engineer Skursky's unending optimism, while periodically annoying, had been a blessing in the past week or so. It allowed Quirier to be hopeful. As the false generation had leaped fleet sergeants at arms, his sense of duty to protect his ship and crew would have compelled him to perform to the best of his ability, no matter what, in this situation. But that little bit of hope made the burden both lighter and more tolerable. It had been fifteen days since they and three others volunteer crews had departed a more armarium in the light transports. The small modular ships were the only jump drive equipped craft on the large cruiser that could be quickly modified for this foolhardy endeavor. The little transports were not designed for more than a two-day outing. The engineers about the Amor AR Mariam had crammed the tiny ship's cargo holds with equipment to extend life support and travel range. Extra food and extra water had been tucked away in every nook and cranny that could be found. Various modules had been hastily attached to increase the ship's duration, sensor range, data collection, and communications capabilities. The humans had insisted on giving the service craft new designations. They had stenciled names Pathfinder 1, Pathfinder 2, Pathfinder 3, and Pathfinder 4 in turn on the ship's hulls. All four departed from the big cruiser simultaneously, men headed in different directions in blind jumps, using the Amor A. Amerium herself as a basis for their travel vectors. Their goal was to blind jump as far as the little ship's Class II hyperdrive could take it without burning out in this weird environment, try to establish a navigational position, and if not, drop a line of sight FTL communications buoy. They would then continue their long vector until they cleared whatever godforsaken glob of space they were in and transmit the escape paths back to the cruiser. Aboard the transport known as Pathfinder 2, they had four more jumps until they were out of buoys. They had passed the point of no return eight days ago. They either succeeded in finding a clear path back to normal space 
or they would die trying, drifting derelict for eternity. Unless they or one of the other Pathfinder crews succeeded, it was likely that everyone aboard the Amor A. Amerium would suffer the same fate. A vessel of the Amor A. Amerium's multidimensional footprint and Class 12 drive system would likely never survive a blind jump. It was actually statistically unlikely that they would survive too many more themselves. Korea banished the rehashing of their situation from his thoughts. It was all superfluous anyway. Thinking about the disorderly, non-linear nature of hyperspace physics made Quiria's brain irrationally angry. He found himself standing outside the hatch to the transport's bridge, more of a glorified cockpit, really. He keyed the intercom and spoke the entry request precisely as regulations required. Sergeant at arms, Quiria requesting bridge access for shift rotation. The hatch chimed and slid open. A disheveled Justin Skursky sat in the human-footed control station. Quiria noted that the engineer Skursky's eyes were bloodshot and had developed large dark patches of skin around them. The human skin itself looked slightly grey and coarse dark whiskers struck out from his unshaven face like tiny spines. Thank God, Q, said engineer Skursky. The fifth cup of coffee is wearing off. I have to get to sleep. Career asked, Skursky, what is the ship's status? Per standard protocol. Justin Skursky blinked and shook his head as if to clear it. That was the first time the stalwart Lieb had ever addressed him by anything less than his official rank and name. He smiled and let it pass without comment. Skursky reported. All systems are operating with intolerances. The drive is holding out so far, but it is going to need a full overhaul when we get home. Consumables are at 35%. The communications buoy chain's operation has been intermittent, but we have been able to maintain positive contact with the Amor A. Amerium for... Skursky glanced at the readout. Around 93% of the time. None of the other Pathfinders have found a way out yet, and Pathfinder 3 years are still unresponsive. It has been four days since the lost contact with them, said Skursky suddenly. Thank you. Are you prepared to be relieved? Asked Quirio as he settled into the leap-fitted control station adjacent to Skursky's. I am, replied Skursky, as he transferred control to Quirio's station. I swear... I've seen that black dog three times in the past half hour. I need sleep, he muttered. What black dog? We don't have any of your human companion creatures with us, impatiently blurted the befuddled courier, who was now wondering if Skursky had sneaked a pet board. No, no, it's a human thing, explained Skursky. Back when humans primarily traveled overland in wheeled vehicles, there were stories, legends, I guess about how drivers would see a black dog running along beside them, even if they were traveling more than a hundred kilometers per hour. Skursky held up a hand. Before you ask, no, our dogs can't run that fast. The driver supposedly saw a ghost. No, a spirit or, or something, I guess. It was a warning that if they didn't stop soon, and if they kept trying to outrun the black dog, they would wreck and die, or something like that. Probably just our subconscious trying to tell us that we were past our limits, I guess. Skursky went silent and blankly stared out the forward port. They were the only actual windows in the ship. For forward main, the forward port and the forward starboard and those only existed so that the ship could be landed visually in case of a massive instrument failure. Quiria pondered Skursky's bit of human folklore and it made a chill scurry across his exoskeleton. He joined Skursky in staring out the main viewport into the weird green and blue wisps where the blurred white lines of hyperspace should have been. 
After a long moment, Skursky let out a deep sigh and reached towards the release of his seat restraint. A black blur shot across the entirety of the starboard viewport into the view of the front window and then just as quickly vanished into the blue and green wisps of the surrounding them. Korea squealed in a long, high-pitched, wavering tone. Skursky startled, jumped against his seat restraints and cursed loudly. He recovered quickly and looked at Korea. You saw that too, Skursky exclaimed. Courier had recovered himself enough to yell at his crewmate, This is not a time for your crazy human jokes! Skursky didn't respond. Instead, his hand darted forward, opened a safety cover, and just as Courier realized what he was doing, he slapped the emergency stop button. A klaxon screamed, and the universe went black from both of them. Excerpt Mission Summary Reported Leap Science Bureau from Science Fleet Survey Cruiser, Amor A. Merriam, Date 11th 00-111-111-001, Galactic Standard Calendar. We have been clear for the anomaly for three standard days. All systems are operating at nominal levels. Three of the four Pathfinder ships have been recovered. One light transport ship and two crewmen are missing and considered lost. Mapping of the boundaries of the anomaly has begun. Estimate 42 days to complete the mapping. Morning buoys and monitoring probes will be deployed one light year from the boundary of the tertiary line of sight pattern per Omega protocol. Before continuing, I have a message that we consider a priority. We, the entire command staff and the science fleet survey cruiser Amor A. Merriam, do unanimously and formally recommend that the lost crew of light transport designated Pathfinder 3 be awarded the Star of Valor first rank, the Star of Duty first rank, and be listed in the Order of Sacrifice, official status, assigned to the Eternal Guard posthumously. We, the entire command staff of the Science Fleet Survey Cruiser Amor A. Merriam, do unanimously and formally recommend that the six surviving crew members of the Volunteer Pathfinder Ships 1, 2, and 4 be awarded the Star of Valor first rank and the Star of Duty first rank. We, the entire command staff of the Science Fleet Survey Cruiser, Amor A. Merriam, do unanimously and formally recommend that Sergeant-at-Arms Quirier be promoted to Sergeant-at-Arms Master Rank, in tradition of the Italy Fleet for unique service. Finally, the entire command staff of the Science Fleet Survey Cruiser, Amor A. Merriam, do unanimously and formally recommend that Engineering Technician 1st Rank Justin Skursky be promoted to Senior Engineering Technician 3rd Rank in the tradition of the Itlib for his unique service. Excerpt ends. Excerpt. Mission Summary Report to Itlib Fleet Intelligence from Science Fleet Survey Cruiser, Amor A. Merriam Intelligence Officer. Name redacted. Date 11001111011. Galactic Standard Calendar. Status Classified Level 2. Initial psychological evaluation of the crew of transport known as Pathfinder 2 shows no signs of anomaly. Dr. Coleoptris' hypothesis that the quote-unquote black dog that they reported was in fact a visual artifact of the ship approaching the boundary of the anomaly at supra-light velocity. Based on observation of several Class Zeta probes sent across the boundary at similar velocity, if the Pathfinder ship had attempted to cross the boundary at that state, it would have been reduced to a quantum components. If Skursky and Korea hadn't decided to stop when they did, we would probably have lost the cruiser and all of its crew and a few search and rescue vessels before we figured it out. 
He further hypothesizes a more Samarium survived the initial pass into the area by, and I quote, sheer dumb luck. PsyOps is monitoring the viral speed of the story through the fleet. It looks like the Black Dogs are going to be incorporated into the fleet lore, like the Lost Fleet 19 and the 18.9 Hertz com whispers. Exert ends. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1732. Of Meat and Magic, written by Perilous Platypus. The line moved slowly. It also smelled like piss. Probably because that's what half of us were doing. We didn't know where we were, but we knew that it was nowhere good. Everyone had heard the stories, and now we were living them. The war was going to crap, and they needed bodies. I'd been in the wrong place at the wrong time, swept up by the conscription gang and put on a cattle barge with a few hundred other miserable souls. Some of them were just kids. At least I had some hair on my back. Not that I was going to do much once the action started. I'd just be a bigger target. I took a step forward and tried to ignore the girl crying behind me. She looked like she was maybe 14. She was very convinced this was all a big mistake. Apparently, her daddy had money. No one seemed to care about her daddy and his coins. Rich, poor, guy, girl. We were all fecked just the same. Meat for the grinder. Up ahead, I could see a large gate that we were all being funneled into. One shuffling step at a time. We were getting ready to be processed, whatever the hell that meant. I had some dim understanding of what was next, but who the hell knew what was true and what was rumor? The particulars probably don't matter anyways. All that mattered was that my life as I knew it was over. Whatever I was before, after today, I'd be a soldier in the Edgarian Legion. I reached the door and stepped through, pushing onward by the trudging along behind me. To the sides, a hawking man in a crisp grey uniform bolted out, Move along, move along! How he had the throat to keep that up, I could only guess. On the other side of the doorway, there was a set of six turnstiles. I lined up in front of one. Just ahead of me was a boy a few years older to man. He looked like he'd spent the last year on the streets, which was probably exactly what he'd been doing. Rations were slim, and a lot of folks had been pushed back from the borders. Ahead of him were a few others, lined up in front of a slender-looking man with an indifferent look on his face. The man sat perched atop the looming black podium flanked by two doors, one grey, one black. In the middle of the podium was a red circle with the outline of a hand in white and in the middle of it. The kid directly in front of the podium stepped up to the man spoke. Hand on the red and white outline. The kid put his hands up and pressed against the outline. Hold, said the man. The kid stood there motionless hand planted on the red outline. Meat, the man said. The grey doorway to his left slid open, and he jutted a thumb towards it. Through the door to receive your assignment. The kid looked up in confusion. Meat, he said. The man nodded. Move along. After a bewildered look around, the kid trudged over towards the door. Once he passed through it, it slammed shut, resetting. 
The man raised a hand and beckoned. Next, hand on the red in the white outline. I watched in confusion as the four in front of me approached the podium, one by one. Each were assigned meat and stepped through the grey door. It was unclear what the other door was for. I tried to discern whether meat was the desired outcome. It certainly didn't sound it. And on the red, in the white outline. I looked around and realized the man was addressing me now. I took a step forward and placed my hand against the hand mark. A jolt of energy shot up my arm, causing my hair to stand on end. Almost immediately, the chiming bell rang out. The man leaned forward, excitement on his face as the black door to his right slid open. Great! Just made my quota! He pointed towards the door. Magic! Magic? I repeated. Through the black door for your assignment. I blinked once and then did as I was told, casting a look back over to the other door everyone else had walked through. It didn't make any sense. We didn't have any mages in the family. Wasn't it supposed to be a blood thing? I swallowed and then passed through the doorway and into a tiny pod-shaped room. I couldn't even stretch out my arms and legs. Almost immediately after I entered, a grinding crank sounded out and I was jostled violently to the side, pushing in an unknown direction by an unknown conveyance. I let out a scream in surprise and proceeded to get banged around for what seemed like an eternity before coming to a jerking halt. The hatch on the pod opened and revealed a pristine black circular room. The tiles were polished to a mirror shine and looked like they were made out of onyx. The walls were some variety of evenwood and impossibly expensive material to make a wall out of. In the center of the circle was a pitch black desk with a chair in front of it. Behind the desk was a woman in a black uniform. Her blonde hair was pulled back into a neat bun and severe crimson eyes stared at him expectantly. Still off balance from the ride in the pod, I took a few uncertain steps towards the desk. Stop wasting my time and take a seat, she pointed to the chair in front of the desk. I picked up the pace and hurried over to the chair, sitting down on it and then staring at the woman. I am Assessor Halex. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, which you will answer truthfully. Then I will conduct a simple test and you will be given your assignment. Do you understand? I swallowed. Um, no, not really. Just answer the questions and you'll be fine. This isn't a mistake. You're right where you're supposed to be. Uh, oh, oh, right, I managed. Excellent, first question. Have you ever exhibited any prior affinity for magic? No, I asked. I'm sure of what qualified as an affinity. Whatever it was, I was pretty sure I hadn't done it or I would have at least suspected I was magic. Right? Is that an answer or a question? Uh, both, I responded. She sighed. Have you ever cast a spell? No. I was pretty sure on that. Have you ever willed an outcome and had it occur? Well, I coughed. Maybe. Describe the circumstances. Uh, it's, um, well, I once wished Suzette Darkland would show me her, uh, you know, um, on a chest, and, uh, a few weeks later, she did, after a dance. She stared at me. I stared at her. That doesn't qualify, Assessor Halleck said. Well, I thought that it had been pretty magical. No, then. Has anyone in your family exhibited any magical abilities? My brother could fart louder than anyone else I'd ever met, but I got the sense that Assessor would be unimpressed by that fact. No, that's why I think it's a mistake. 
She held up a hand. It's not a mistake. How can you be so certain I am an assessor, she replied, as if the answer was self-evident. Are you in possession of, or have you ever come into contact with any objects with magical properties? I laughed. No, I I'm not rich. The closest I gotten was seeing the town's Rathspear on Remembrance Day, and most people said it was just a fake. Have you engaged in any soul bargains or other dealings with the Dwanic, or an extra planar presences? I shook my head in the negative. Hold out your hands in front of you, palms up, she said, her voice commanding. I extended my hands in front of me, embarrassed by the slight tremble in them. She leaned forward over the desk and then placed her hands on top of mine, her fingers extending beyond my palms to the rest of my wrists. Her unsettling crimson eyes began to spark and swirl, gaining a swirl of milky white shot through the vault of black. She gasped once and then let go of my wrists. For the first time, she looked as unsettled as me. I peered at her curiously. What happened? The assessor raised her hand up to her hair, smoothing it against her skull as she appeared to collect herself. You have been assessed and assigned. All right, I said, unsure what else to say. Please return to the pod you arrived in. It will take you to the, your training facility. She shooed me away with a hand, gesturing back towards the direction that I'd entered the room from. What am I assigned to? Now she looked uncertain and embarrassed, but only for the briefest of moments. Once it had passed, she straightened and looked at me dead in the eyes, her voice even a commanding and once more. You have been assigned to the Wrath Leges. The blood drained from my face. No, uh, th that doesn't make any sense. They were all dead. That's what everyone said. Gone ever since they opened the rent and broke the worlds. I wish you the best of luck. Now, please, leave. Immediately. Please. That was an unexpected word from her. It echoed in my head as I stumbled back towards the pod, trying to make sense of what she had told me. The wrath leeches. It had to be a mistake. Someone would clear it up. I just needed... needed to talk to someone else. It had to be a mistake. The hatch slammed shut behind me, and I plummeted downwards. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1733 Story number one, Supremely Average, written by Scooby Wagon. Robber was sitting in an astrogator seat on the bridge of the SLV Solduck. So named because in galactic standard it sounded an awful lot, like some kind of weird sex act, and the captain thought it was hilarious. Robber always got a kick out of this during docking because... From the perspective of traffic controllers, she might as well be announcing the arrival of the SSS Cleveland steamer. She'd finished verifying course, speed, and known interstellar anomalies along the course, and was setting in for a long haul for a night shift. Comfy seat, check. Caffeinated beverage, check. Doom running on nav console, duh. The comm panel lit up and buzzed, dragging Robert's attention away from Dune. Was Gathok. The night shift engineer, Robber, grabbed her beverage, took a sip, and used the bottom of the cup to press the acknowledge button. Hey, Robber, are oh, you all set? Uh, yep, uh, all set here. Yeah. Any weird maintenance going on tonight that I need to be aware of? Classy, Robber, real classy. No weird maintenance tonight, just your regular kind. If you're all settled in, can I come up there? Sure, come on up. 
Regular maintenance meant lots of automation, but Gathok could monitor from pretty much anywhere on the ship, so he usually chose to do so on the bridge so he could talk to Rubber. Rubber, for her part, tended to enjoy these conversations simply because they gave her some insight into other cultures, usually just Gothok's own Karolic culture, but sometimes others as well. A few minutes later, the hatch chimed as it opened and Gothok entered the bridge. Rubber closed Doom, but Gothok had already spotted it. You know the Captain Reynolds will probably toss you out the airlock if he sees you playing that, right? Gothok pointed out. Psst, whatever. What's life without a little risk once in a while? Rubber responded. She smiled to herself since it had been the captain's idea in the first place, and he currently held the highest score. Gothok propped himself down in another seat and pulled up the engineering controls on the display. Sometimes your disregard your own safety is, uh, concerning, he said as the display loaded. Ah, you really care. Maybe I'll nawful you a little later after all. She laughed at her own private joke, as the fur on the back of Gothok's head stood on end. It was a species display of embarrassment. She'd never bothered to show Gothok the Conehead's movie, or explain to him the reference to his name, with Narfal the Gothoks. Gothoks didn't know that Narfal meant, but he was pretty sure that it was neither lewd or vile, or both. This was not his first trip on a human vessel. Gothok shook his head to get the fur back into place and continued. Anyway, have you ever noticed how well average your people are? Rubber just stared incredulously at Gothok for a moment. Gothok, I have no idea what you're talking about here. I've known you for a while and I'm sure you didn't mean that to sound so insulting. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell me just what the feck you're talking about? Well, uh, think about it for a moment. Humans are, uh, uh, what was the word, uh, Johns of all works. I'm pretty sure you mean Jack of all trades, Rubber laughed. Go on, right, Jack of all trades. Anyway, you humans are literally that. Humans do pretty much everything, dude. You're talking about an entire species. Fourteen trillion individuals, obviously. We're in all trades and whatnot. No species specializes like that. I know that, Garthok retorted. But think about it this way. Let's assume the ship is yours. You need to put together the best crew you can get. So let's start with the front and work our way to the back of the ship. You need an astrogator. Who do you hire? Let's be generous and say that money does not matter. Brother thought about it for a second. Oh, well in that case, I'd absolutely be Belgrind of the Mystic Queen. Exactly, said Garthok. You'd get Belgrind. You'd get a chick. Hold on now, I'm not after any Kajik, I'm our one Belgrind, Rubber objected. Fair enough, but look at the list of the most highly rated astrogators in Confed. The first three pages are all Kajiks. After that you start seeing other species show up, including humans. But we're talking about a species that has lived in interstellar nomadic lifestyle for 300,000 of your years. Obviously not every Kajik is an astrogator, let alone a good one. But if you want the best astrogator you can get, odds are you'll be looking at a good check. Rubber considered this for a moment, then said, Okay, go on. Okay, what about cargo handlers? Well, that's kind of an unskilled labor thing, so pretty much anyone can do that. True enough, but what traits make an excellent cargo handler? Rubber thought about this for a very long moment, before responding. Well, 
They need to be reasonably strong. I mean, the lifters do all the really heavy stuff, but some cargo still gets handled manually. They'd need to be able to operate all the equipment correctly and safely. They need to be able to both work long hours and tolerate long periods of soul-crushing boredom. Garthok smiled slightly. Well, doesn't that just sound like what the short description of the Shalit? They are a species that, for all intents and purposes, are living rocks. By any other species standard, their physical strength is essentially without limits, and they don't just get tired ever. So they can work extremely hard for as long as necessary. Then, when the loading is done, they're the happiest being on their own and pretending to be actual rocks. Rubber nodded her agreement. Okay, you got me there. But I'd like to point out that they're also really hard on deck plates. Cute. But the fact that every ship everywhere in Confed looks for chalets to do cargo handling, it's certainly not that they can't do other things on a ship. It's just that they tend to be a really excellent fit for cargo handlers. Clearly, they're a space-faring species, so obviously they have actual rocket scientists and such. Gothok, you know you're sounding kind of racist right now, right? What? No. Look at it this way, and, uh, by the way, I found this on your recreational database. So if it's a racist, that's on you. If we express key traits numerically, we can use a 20-point scale for granularity. Actually, I don't know why it's a 20-point scale, but that was what was in the database. But if we go with that, then the average human intelligence would be something like a 10 or 11. Same with strength and wisdom, though I've met enough humans to make my question that one. Dexterity, etc. No other species in Confed does that. They tend to rank very high in one or two areas and very low in the rest. But humans are middle of the street at best. On the other hand, there are middle of the street at worst. Road. Y you mean middle of the road, Rubber replied. Yes, that, anyway. If you think it through, you humans are incredibly average. Not only that, but you've known it for centuries. Your own recreational database notes that humans tend to be sort of average, even going back 3,000 years. Rubber was baffled. What? 3,000 years? How do you work that out? Well, Gathok said, the first found this numerical system in something called ADDV302. When I looked at previous versions, it goes all the way back to version 1 from almost 3,000 of your years ago. 1978 AD, to be specific. Jesus, Gathok, did you sit down and read the Dungeons and Dragons source book? Yes. What? Rubber shook her head. Oh, um, nothing really, um... It just dawned on me that in 3,000 years, WOTC still exists and uh, also hasn't managed to update the D20 system. End of story. Story number two. From a place you'll never see. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. Humans, pitiful. Dax snarled at the life form before me at the execution stand. The human remained silent. The rows of Manalex infantry gazed in reverence at the God King as he personally insulted the human. Nothing to say, human, the God King gloated. The human slowly looked up at the crowd, then off to the distance of the mountain world. Just one thing. The human's voice creaked like death itself as it began. From a place you shall not see shall come a sound you shall not hear.
the human, Lodi said. The God King laughed, and with one of his many strong arms, punched the human across the stage. A redundant statement, human. The God King's voice shook the mountains as the human laughed. The human offered no further explanation. The God King sneered and got real close to the human's ear, hissing something. The human's bloody lips curled into a smile. He then headbutted the God King, who straightened immediately and reeled black. The God King stood tall to strike. Then a deep orange blood of brain matter splattered across the stage as the dead God King fell over, his soldiers stunned by the sudden silent death. Then, seconds later, over the mountains, a boom reached their ears and they began to collapse in fear. I smiled and slowly released the trigger as I unhooked an earbud, putting my Remington XQ-7000, an old era rifle, but reliable. Looking through my scope, I saw Chris stagger to his feet and pull his bonds off, shooting me a thumbs up as he stumbled for the God King's shuttlecraft. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1733 Story number one, supremely average, written by Scooby Wagon. Robber was sitting in an astrogator seat on the bridge of the SLV Solduck. So named because in galactic standard it sounded an awful lot, like some kind of weird sex act, and the captain thought it was hilarious. Rava always got a kick out of this during docking, because, from the perspective of traffic controllers, she might as well be announcing the arrival of the SSS Cleveland steamer. She'd finished verifying course, speed, and known interstellar anomalies along the course, and was setting in for a long haul for a night shift. Comfy seat, check. Caffeinated beverage, check. Doom running on nav console. Duh. The comm panel lit up and buzzed, dragging Robber's attention away from Dune. Oscar Sock, the night shift engineer. Robber grabbed her beverage, took a sip, and used the bottom of the cup to press the acknowledge button. Hey, Robber, oh, you're all set. Uh, yep, uh, all set here. Any weird maintenance going on tonight that I need to be aware of? Glassy, Robber, real glassy. No weird maintenance tonight, just your regular kind. If you're all settled in, can I come up there? Sure, come on up. Regular maintenance meant lots of automation for Gathok could monitor from pretty much anywhere on the ship, so he usually chose to do so on the bridge so he could talk to Rava. Rava, for her part, tended to enjoy these conversations simply because they gave her some insight into other cultures, usually just Gothok's own Karolic culture, but sometimes others as well. A few minutes later, the hatch chimed as it opened and Guthok entered the bridge. Robber closed Doom, but Guthok had already spotted it. You know the Captain Reynolds will probably toss you out the airlock if he sees you playing that, right? Guthok pointed out. Psst, whatever. What's life without a little risk once in a while? Robber responded. She smiled to herself since it had been the Captain's idea in the first place, and he currently held the highest score. Gersok plopped himself down in another seat and pulled up the engineering controls on the display. Sometimes your disregard your own safety is, uh, concerning, he said as the display loaded. Ah, you really care. Maybe I'll nawful you a little later after all. She laughed at her own private joke as the fur on the back of Gersok's head stood on end. It was a species display of embarrassment. She'd never bothered to show Gathok the Conehead's movie or explain to him the reference to his name with Narfel the Garthoks. 
Gothox didn't know that novel meant, but he was pretty sure that it was neither lewd or vile, or both. This was not his first trip on a human vessel. Gothok shook his head to get the fur back into place and continued, Anyway, have you ever noticed how well average our people are? Rabba just stared incredulously at Gothok for a moment. Gothok, I have no idea what you're talking about here. I've known you for a while, and I'm sure you didn't mean that to sound so insulting. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell me just what the feck you're talking about? Well, uh, think about it for a moment. Humans are, uh, uh, what was the word, uh, Johns of all works. I'm pretty sure you mean Jack of all trades, Robber laughed. Go on, right, Jack of all trades. Anyway, you humans are literally that. Humans do pretty much everything, dude. You're talking about an entire species. Fourteen trillion individuals, obviously. We're in all trades and whatnot. No species specializes like that. I know that, Garthok retorted. But think about it this way. Let's assume the ship is yours. You need to put together the best crew you can get. So let's start with the front and work our way to the back of the ship. You need an astrogator. Who do you hire? Let's be generous and say that money does not matter. Brubber thought about it for a second. Oh, well, in that case, I'd absolutely be Belgrind of the Mystic Queen. Exactly, said Garthok. You'd get Belgrind. You'd get a chick. Hold on now, I'm not after any Kachik, I'm our one Belgrind, Rubber objected. Fair enough, but look at the list of the most highly rated astrogators in Confed. The first three pages are all Kachiks. After that, you start seeing other species show up, including humans. But we're talking about a species that has lived in interstellar nomadic lifestyle for 300,000 of your years. Obviously, not every Kachik is an astrogator, let alone a good one. But if you want the best astrogator you can get, odds are you'll be looking at a good check. Robber considered this for a moment, then said, Okay, go on. Okay, what about cargo handlers? Well, that's kind of an unskilled labor thing, so pretty much anyone can do that. True enough, but what traits make an excellent cargo handler? Robber thought about this for a very long moment before responding. Well... They need to be reasonably strong. I mean, the lifters do all the really heavy stuff, but some cargo still gets handled manually. They'd need to be able to operate all the equipment correctly and safely. They need to be able to both work long hours and tolerate long periods of soul-crushing boredom. Gothok smiled slightly. Well, doesn't that just sound like what the short description of the shallot? They are a species that, for all intents and purposes, are living rocks. By any other species standard, their physical strength is essentially without limits, and they don't just get tired ever. So they can work extremely hard for as long as necessary. Then, when the loading is done, they're the happiest being on their own and pretending to be actual rocks. Robber nodded her agreement. Okay, you got me there. But I'd like to point out that they're also really hard on deck plates. Cute. But the fact that every ship everywhere in Confed looks for chalets to do cargo handling, it's certainly not that they can't do other things on a ship. It's just that they tend to be a really excellent fit for cargo handlers. Clearly, they're a space-faring species, so obviously they have actual rocket scientists and such. Gosok, you know you're sounding kind of racist right now, right? What? No. Look at it this way, and, uh, by the way, I found this on your recreational database. 
So if it's a racist, that's on you. If we express key traits numerically, we can use a 20-point scale for granularity. Actually, I don't know why it's a 20-point scale, but that was what was in the database. But if we go with that, then the average human intelligence would be something like a 10 or 11. Same with strength and wisdom, though I've met enough humans to make my question that one. Dexterity, etc. No other species in Confed does that. They tend to rank very high in one or two areas and very low in the rest. But humans are middle of the street at best. On the other hand, there are middle of the street at worst. Road. Y you mean middle of the road, Robber replied. Yes, that, at any way. If you think it through, you humans are incredibly average. Not only that, but you've known it for centuries. Your own recreational database notes that humans tend to be sort of average, even going back 3,000 years. Robber was baffled. What? 3,000 years? How do you work that out? Well, Gathok said, the first found this numerical system in something called ADDV302. When I looked at previous versions, it goes all the way back to version 1 from almost 3,000 of your years ago. 1978 A.D., to be specific. Jesus, Gathok, did you sit down and read the Dungeons and Dragons source book? Yes. What? Robert shook her head. Oh, um, nothing, really, um... It just dawned on me that in 3,000 years, WOTC still exists and uh, also hasn't managed to update the D20 system. End of story. Story number two. From a place you'll never see. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. Humans, pitiful. Dax snarled at the life form before me at the execution stand. The human remained silent. The rows of Manalax infantry gazed in reverence at the God King as he personally insulted the human. Nothing to say, human, the God King gloated. The human slowly looked up at the crowd, then off to the distance of the mountain world. Just one thing. The human's voice creaked like death itself as it began. From a place you shall not see shall come a sound you shall not hear. The human, Lodi said. The God King laughed, and with one of his many strong arms, punched the human across the stage. A redundant statement, human. The God King's voice shook the mountains as the human laughed. The human offered no further explanation. The God King sneered and got real close to the human's ear, hissing something. The human's bloody lips curled into a smile. He then headbutted the God King, who straightened immediately and reeled black. The God King stood tall to strike. Then a deep orange blood of brain matter splattered across the stage as the dead God King fell over, his soldiers stunned by the sudden silent death. Then, seconds later, over the mountains, a boom reached their ears and they began to collapse in fear. I smiled and slowly released the trigger as I unhooked an earbud, putting my Remington XQ-7000, an old air rifle, but reliable. Looking through my scope, I saw Chris stagger to his feet and pull his bonds off, shooting me a thumbs up as he stumbled for the God King's shuttlecraft. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1734. Story number one. Shiny Rocks, written by a lone donut. When it comes to faster-than-light travel, you will be presented with two possibilities. 
One is to puncture space-time with a concentrated burst of energy, and to slide along on the reality-reduced pocket you create, skipping along at superluminal velocities by abusing the laws of physics. Most species end up calling this a skip drive, or some derivative of that. The other way is to fold space in on itself and using high levels of energy create a pathway between them. These are frequently called wormholes, and the devices that create them are usually simplified to gates. While the skip drive is arguably the most energy efficient, it is slower than the gate system, though the gates have their own issue that make them less feasible. Now the power requirements is the biggest hurdle for either of these forms of travel. Once you understand the physics, though, understanding this principle usually leads to the understanding of the most complicated matters of the universe, such as splitting the atom or developing stable micro-singularities. This leads to the next problem to arise, however, the materials. For a skip drive, the development is pretty straightforward. Once a species can find a way to keep the craft structurally intact for the transition, usually through a grasp of titanium alloys, gate technology allows you to transport a vessel through no skip drive, reducing the cost of production. But comes with another material component issue, that being the need for gold or platinum. These two rare metals lead to the true challenge of the gate system. No one is completely sure what unique properties of platinum and gold it is that creates the perfect conditions to conduct the energy generated by wormholes and keep it stable, but it is a key component. For most species, however, this creates a problem. While these metals are exceptional conductors, their rarity combined with the relative malleability to other metals makes them unfit for large-scale usage. And with no other real usage in the scale of manufacturing, by the time a species has reached the need for faster-than-light speed, both metals have been generally left alone, or discarded. Some might make their way into the market of high-end electronics, but for the most part there are no reserves for these metals. Then, there is the Sol system. Somewhere along the way, the universe decided to throw caution to the wind and predeterminately create a galactic superpower located in a relatively dead region of the galaxy. With no immediate stellar neighbors, the inhabitants of Sol Prime, humans on the planet they called Earth, became poised to conquer. Though it was not to be easy, as a death world the planet was crowded with predators, and even the species that aren't predatory are dangerous. According to one report, there was a large two-meter-tall land animal with antlers, a thick hide, and a poor temperament they could shrug off being hit by land transport. This creature, which again was a land animal, was hunted by a mammalian sea animal. And in the higher-than-average gravity, the natural satellite that was too close and could affect the tides of the planet, and you had a recipe for disaster. The species should have risen to a level of sapience, and yet there was one with at least two others being studied and considered for potential uplifting. No, through a miracle... The humans managed to survive to become the dominant species, and this was where the universe played its other sick joke. Not only was Earth, the sole asteroid belt, and many of the planets around absolutely loaded with gold, the humans were obsessed with it. Not because of some metalworking technique they developed, or because of its later use as an electrical conductor. No, gold was popular with humans because of one simple reason.
They thought it looked nice. Humans used it as currency, then backed to get a currency with it. Then once they realized the physical attractiveness of the rock was useless and created a digital currency exchange, many humans still collected it fervently, believing one day it would be worth something due to its shine. The first human expeditions to mine their asteroid belt weren't driven by species betterment or to gather critical resources to evolve their species. The promise of shiny rock was what made the human business owners, and the luster of the rock was enough to convince them that they should go get more of it. To create a gate large enough for a person to walk through, the least effective use of the gate, you would require around 5 kilograms of gold. For most species, this is a massive waste of this much gold, and the large orbiting gates used for transporting massive fleets or interstellar trading ships are focused on. One of these gates will require about 250 kilograms of gold, a little less if you can offset this with a 10% platinum. To have two gates is considered a hallmark of entering the FTL club. To have four is considered ideal, and to have anything more than 10 is considered the marker of a truly great empire. Almost no species operate more than a handful of personal gates. There are seven gates in the Sol system alone around all major planets, with nearly a hundred small person-sized gates across the system. The closest star system near their homeworld all have at least two gates, most having more. Overall, there are nearly 50 total human stellar gates in service. Humans have even experimented with having a single person gates on ships as well, having them successfully built two of these ships, though they were considered so opulent that actually sending them to most places ended up being seen as an insult. Overnight, humans became the intergalactic sensation, with species clamoring to buy just a little of the excess gold supply they possessed. They rose to fame and power, and were given access to technology to make their gates better, effective, and sold their designs and construction the galaxy over. From backwater nobodies to galactic superpowers within a few years, one of the richest and most respected nations in the galactic political sphere. All because of their love for shiny rocks. End of story. Story number two. Trial by Combat. Written by Kaiser5243. Shavulda and I lounged about in our CHU after a long day of training. As Fulban, a marsupial species about five and a half feet tall, we had been selected as one of the first aliens to partake in the military exchange program with the humans. Our physiology was one of the closest to the humans, and while they tended to be larger and stronger, our lithe bodies, excellent night vision, and sensitive hearing made us perfect scouts for the infantry units. I... Can't imagine why so many of them had such an issue climbing the rope. It's really not that hard. Trivulda mused as he lay in his bed exhausted. Well, uh, to be fair, they were much denser than we are. And don't forget that we can't lift half the weight they can. Did you see Riley running with that log? I almost passed out from exhaustion watching him. I replied without turning. My right ear twitched as someone knocked politely on the door. Sounds like uh, five or six of them. Uh, I wonder what they want, he asked quizzically as he stood to answer the door. Sugar babies, how are we doing? Specialist Samson shouted as he barged into the room. 
He had a large television in his hands and a smell of grease and cheese wafted in from outside. Got a place I can set this down? I nodded, confused, and pointed to a small desk in the corner. Four more humans piled in behind him, one carrying a stack of square boxes that the smell seemed to be coming from, another with a strange black rectangular device with lots of wires, and the last two carried cases that jingled when they stepped with the sound of glass bottles. The humans immediately took over the space. Samson and Tanner began to hook up the television to the device, while Franklin and O'Connor began pouring out bottles from the cases and placing them in our refrigerator. Stevens looked around for a moment before placing the square box on my bed. Shivulder and I looked on in confusion. Um, uh, gentlemen, uh, uh, may I ask what you're doing? Alarm clear, my voice. Specialist Samson stopped and turned around suddenly, very serious. Shivulder, Montero, you have proven yourselves worthy of our respect and companionships in the time since your arrival. The only thing left to do is a sacred ritual that will forever bind your souls to ours. O'Connor, the sacred nectar. Calmly and with great reverence, O'Connor began to hand out bottles from the refrigerator. He handed one to each of us, and we stood in a circle. The humans twisted the caps off the bottles, and we followed suit. Specialist Samson lifted his bottle in the air. To our sugar babies, may they bring the enemy hell. The humans clanked the bottles to each other in the middle of the circle, motioning for us to do the same as well. They then chugged the bubbling liquid at an alarming speed. Shivulda and I attempted to do so as well, but I was forced to stop to breathe while Shivulda coughed and foam came out of his nose, causing the humans to laugh uproariously. Don't worry, man, it gets easier. And trust me, you'll have lots of practice. Tanner laughed, clapping the embarrassed Shavulda on the back. All right, grab some pizza while we finish preparations for the final part. Plates were handed out and the boxes on the bed were opened as the humans fell on the ground dough and cheese abominations inside. We both looked unsure as we were handed slices of this greasy meat-covered heart attack. The smell was pleasant, though, so after watching the humans devour their slices, I shrugged and took a bite. It was fantastic. My ears stood straight out of my eyes dilated in pleasure. Encouraged by my reaction, Shivulda also took a bite of his, letting out a small squeak of satisfaction. Crap's good, right? Tanner said as he grabbed another. Okay, gentlemen, it's time, Samson said, turning from the television. Time for what? I asked with trepidation. The final stage of human bonding ceremony. Trial by combat. He hit the button on the controller, and a loud voice shouted from the television, Mortal Kombat! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1735 Story number one. Danger Close, written by Average Cake Enjoyer. Zephyr grit his teeth, letting loose another bolt of mana towards a never-ending horde of hivers. Solidified mana met the wall of flesh, ripping through the mutated muscle and tearing limbs from bodies. He carved holes through their ranks, bolt after bolt, a blue light manner penetrating through multiple bodies at a time. And yet, no matter how much he or any of the others of his squadmates shot, the hivers kept running, 
trampling over the lifeless corpses of their fallen brothers just to get another step closer to their position. Eight hundred meters. How long had it been, Zephyr couldn't tell. He sensed the time blurring a long time ago. It was acrid stench of burnt powder and the metallic taste of blood on his tongue being the only things that he could sense. A hand clasped around his shoulder, making him swivel around violently. His staff charged and pointed at his attacker. Are you okay? Zephyr sighed in relief. It was his battle buddy, Joyce, the Terran Marine. You're looking very pale. He wiped at the sweat beading up on his brow and said, uh, I- I'm good. He managed to stutter out. Joyce gave him a nod and turned back towards the enemy as she reloaded her rifle, racking it and letting off a burst of lead towards the enemy, the bullets finding their targets as they dropped body after body. 700 meters. The actions on the marine beside him let a fire under him, bringing what was left of his energy to bear. He turned towards the advancing horde and unleashed a beam of pure energy from the tip of his staff. The shaft of mana cutting a line through the hivers as it swept across the battlefield. Swaths of bodies were left charred and countless numbers of hivers were left without limbs, but their advance was never stopped, only slowed momentarily. He barely had any time to appreciate the destruction he caused before he started to stumble, a stream of blood flowing from his nose as his fur started to turn grey from mana deficiency. His vision started tunneling, and his legs lost all strength, his star falling to the ground gracelessly. Six hundred meters. The marine who was beside him took notice and rushed to his aid, catching him before he hit the dirt. She yelled through her mic as she looked around, gesturing at another marine to come help. They a corpsman to my position. Write the fact now. Zephyr was having a hard time focusing on his surroundings, his eyes glazing over as he struggled to stay awake. Joyce grasped his hand with her own. Becking, stay with me. Don't you go dying on me, you son of a bitch. Ah, I'm fine. Zephyr's sentence was interrupted by a cough as flecks of crimson splattered on the marine's face, blood running down the corners of his lips. Beck! Joyce grimaced as she saw the light in Zephyr's eyes start dimming. His grasp on her hand started to waver. Five hundred meters. Another soldier finally came to the scene. A trauma kit in their hands. Shit, he's in bad shape. Give me some room. She gave the corpsman a quick nod as she moved away. The corpsman pulling out a pair of trauma shears from the kit, taking off Zephyr's vest and cutting his clothes off. As she gave him one more look, Joyce sprinted off to the other side of the position that they were holding to another marine, one with a radio on their back. She briefly relayed some instructions to the marine and ran back to Zephyr's side, a look of concern painting her face. She leaned down towards the corpsman, whispering in his ear. How bad is it? He gave her a shake of his head. I can't do anything for him here. We're going to need to medivac or he's not going to make it another day. Four hundred meters. The sound of gunfire started to taper off. The shouts of the marines requesting ammo coming shortly after. Joyce looked down at her own rifle. The bolt walked back and only empty magazine filling her pouches. Zephyr turned his head towards her, his bleary eyes locked with hers. Guess this is it. I never thought of it like this, but as as far as endings go, fighting till the end doesn't seem so bad. Don't be a fucking quitter, 
she said with a crackly laugh, tears starting to pool at the corners of her eyes. He don't over until it's over. You hear? 300 meters. The hivers approached even faster than before, now unbothered by the lack of rifle fire and staff blasts. Marines across the defensive position looked down at the approaching horde in dread, some putting out their pistols to shoot at the enemies. Just, just do, do me a, a favor, yeah? He said to her weakly, Shoot, shoot me b- before they get you. I, I don't want to get ripped over. His sentence was interrupted by the roaring of jets in the distance. Holy feck! Joyce dropped to her knees in relief, her words almost getting stuck in her throat. Took those flower boys long enough. The pair of jets soared overhead, flying over the mass of hivers, dropping canisters from their wings as they flew past. The canisters split open as they separated from the plane, revealing hundreds of bomblets as they fell. They landed squarely in the middle of the mass, a carpet of explosions sweeping over the horde of bodies. Clouds of terrain and chunks of flesh flew in all directions, a crimson mist and a shower of viscera staining the air like some form of macabre art piece. And yet, the shattered ranks of the horde pushed forward. Two hundred meters. The jets turned and came in for another run, this time diving lower towards the ground. A flash of light and a cloud of smoke erupted from the noises of the planes, showering the remnants of the hivers with high explosive projectiles. Brrrt! Countless numbers of hivers were separated from their limbs, some falling face first into the ground, their legs gone from their knees down, some disappeared completely, a shell hitting them directly, turning them into a chunky saucer. The last of the hivers stumbled forward, the only one left standing. It was a tattered mess, with bleeding gashes caused by fragmentation and burns littering its body, clutching the stump of the arm it had left. It stared at the marines ahead of it, with hatred burning in its eyes before collapsing to the floor in a bloody heap, unmoving. One hundred meters, and no further. Cheers erupted from the battle line of marines, Whoops and yells of celebration filling the air around them. Some of the marines finally broke down, falling to their knees, crying tears of relief. Zephyr could only manage a weak laugh as he grasped Joyce's hand one more time. Yeah, you crazy bastards. His voice trailed off as his eyes slowly closed. Head lolling sniflessly in the hands of the corpsman holding him. Shit, don't die on us now. Call a medivac. He'll be fine. Just a little R&R and therapy is all he needs. Thanks, Doc. No worries. Call me if you need anything else. Will do. Zephyr slowly opened one of his eyes, the dust of sleep still crusting the corners of them. He was met with a blinding light above him before it slowly dimmed to show the concerned face of joy. Both his eyes opened in shock before calming down again. I guess we didn't make it, huh? Is this next, uh... Are you, uh, an angel? He said morosely. Joyce gave him a playful shove on the shoulder. Cut it out, dumbass. You know how worried I was? She said with a laugh. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we made it out, huh? How? Well, the flyboys turned everything on the field to mist, so it gave us enough time to get a dropship down to come evac us. Just barely, though. As soon as we were up and out of dodge, another horde of them fecking showed up. You got it a bit closer. I'm not sure if I was hallucinating at the time, but I swear to the gods above, 
Those explosions got a bit too close for our comfort. Nothing like a bit of danger close to get your blood pumping, huh? You... Terrans are crazy, he said with a scoff. She gave him a soft smile. You betcha. End of story. Story number two. The Drive to Invent, written by The Missing Think. The campfire had burnt down to embers. The red glow reflecting in the massive, impressive pile of empty bottles that had grown between the two men. You know, Herb, for all mankind's inventions, the original is still the best. We gestured vaguely forward. You mean beer, Hank? Hard to disagree with you there, but I am not sure that I'd go so far as saying that it is the original. Not beer, you moron. Hank gestured forward. Fire! Where'd we be now if some bright spark, he chuckled lightly, and the unattended pun hadn't come up with that. In the dark, probably, Herb replied with a laugh of his own. The two settled down into a companionable silence, broken only by the occasional pomp of the fire and the hiss of the fresh bottle being opened. Hank laughed again. How do you figure that? Funny thing about uh, inventions, you know. Herb started up again. They're all, uh, uh, every last one of them inspired by the same thing. Sex. Hank laughed again. Oh, so how do you figure that? Well, take fire for a start. Do you think the guy who came up with that was thinking about cooking food or melting metals and such? No way. He just wanted more light so that he could see what he was doing. If, if you catch my drift. <laughs> okay, replied Hank. I'll give you that one. What about beer? Easy. That was so he couldn't see what he was doing so clear. Both men laughed at that one, until silence settled around them once again. More crackles from the fire, more beer opened. Okay, Herb, what about the wheel? That's so that we could see the pretty woman from the next tribe over. Spears? Well, so that we could take the woman from the next tribe over. All right, all right. So your idea stacks up pretty well for the cavemen types, but we're past that all now. Look at the modern inventions we got, with nothing to do with sex, like, uh, for instance, um... Hank paused. Every invention he thought of seemed to lead back to sex, with little consideration. Bones talking to women, cameras, the taking of pictures of women, cars, there was a reason they came with the back seat. Computers, well, <laughs> he wasn't the only one to call them porn machines. Finally, inspiration struck. Oh, what about spaceships? Wait... You think those alien types don't have women, too? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1736 Spaceborn, written by Kiwi Space Marine I flung myself to the ground as blobs of plasma streamed over where my head had been just moments before, rolling into a nearby ditch. I listened as the superheated enemy fire hissed through the air above me, picking myself up. I fired several bursts back at the enemy, before retreating back into cover. The agonizing screams of the dying and the sound of explosions echoed around me as I crawled back to the rest of my unit, making sure to keep that shattered remains of a wall between me and enemy fire. There's too many of them, Captain, I called out to my superior as I reached the remnants of my platoon. We'll have to fall back, negative, the four-armed Thanok shouted back. We can't fall back. We must retake the city. We can't, sir, someone else protested. The enemy fire is too great. All conversation stopped abruptly as several artillery shells landed nearby, the thunderous crack of their detonations causing everyone to hit the dirt. 
dust and debris flung up from the blast swirled the air as we got back to our feet, our armor's respirators filtering out the worst of the detritus. How long until our relief arrives? The captain demanded of Private Glenster, the radio operator. Glenster and insectoid Hactra shook their head. I just got off the horn with the command, they replied. Our troops are still stuck in orbit. They can't get past the anti-air defense. The captain swore. I stared out into the smoke-filled sky in dismay, watching the fires that raged across the horizon. The Galactic Concordance 12th Army, which I had the misfortune of being a part of, had been stuck on this rock for the past two months. We were trying to take it back from the hyper-expansionist Mycene Directorate in order to regain control of vital hyperspace lane. So far, though, our efforts had been stemmed by the severe breakdown of our logistics and the campaign had stalled. The enemy, by virtue of controlling the hyperspace lane that we were so desperate to reclaim, didn't have this problem. They had quickly called in reinforcements to their own to beat back our forces in orbit and go to ground. After two weeks of losing territory groundside, the Concordance had managed to scrape together enough ships to regain orbital superiority. However, getting those reinforcements through the thick network of enemy anti-air defense was proving to be a tough challenge. The Directorate had been smart in the placement of the guns and missile batteries. They were clustered either around vital civilian infrastructure or very close to our forces. An orbital bombardment would thus result in catastrophic collateral damage. Those of us on the ground couldn't get near the defenses, as the enemy had dug in heavily near the sites, stopping any advance that we made with plasma cannons and walls of artillery fire. As we crouched behind our wall, at a loss with what to do, my soul cleanster put a claw to his dust-covered halberd as they were wearing. Sir, the Hector cried out excitedly, I'm getting reports of several ships exiting hyperspace. More directorate forces, the captain asked sharply. Negative, sir, exclaimed the insectoid. They're from the Territorial Union. The humans? The captain said in amazement. What are they doing here? I was also confused. The humans were one of the newer arrivals on the galactic scene. No one knew much about them. All I'd heard that they were bipedal and that they had a paradoxical attitude of being simultaneously extremely militaristic while also being extremely anti-war. I wondered why they were here. Their territory was nowhere near the disputed area between the Concordance and the Directorate. While I was pondering this, I heard Clenster's radio crackle again. Sir, the radio operator reported, the humans claim to be offering assistance to our forces. They say they'll be sending troops planetside. They'll be landing within minutes. What? The captain was stunned. Are they insane? Do they not know about the anti-air? They'll be fried. They don't seem to think so, sir. Clenster replied. They're apparently on their way now. Look. Corporal Druton, another Thurnet called out, pointing wildly at the sky. Up there. Making sure to keep our heads low, we all turned to look at several fireballs streaking across the sky, plummeting towards the enemy position. What's going on? I asked. Is it a bombardment? I reckon it's the starship fragments, Jordan suggested. The crazy humans tried to fly through the missiles and got swatted. No, wait. The captain spoke over all of us. Private Stenchak, he called to me. Pass me those electro-binoculars of yours, he said, referring to the optic standing around my neck. I wordlessly complied, handing him the device. Putting them up to his eyes, the captain gazed at the mysterious object as they got closer and closer. 
There is something about them, the captain said. I can't make it out. As I drew nearer, I saw that the objects were traveling too fast for the enemy defenses to get a bead on. Smoke trails spiraling into the sky and plasma bursts spat out in wild arcs, and the directorate struggled to get missiles and guns on track. When they were just a couple hundred meters off the ground, the objects abruptly deaccelerated as rockets activated from the underside. As they slowed down, they began popping flares and chaff to stop the directorate from destroying them in their now vulnerable state. Why? The, the, the drop pods, the captain cried out. The pods started landing haphazardly behind the Mycene lines, throwing the directorate forces into disarray. The confusion was sown deeper when the pods burst open and armored figures began to emerge from them and attack the disorganized Mycene troops. The metallic chatter of the humans' automatic kinetic rifles contrasted sharply with the electric crackle of the directorate's plasma rifles as both sides tried to outdo each other in seeing who could kill the other first. One of the pods slammed into the ground not far from us, causing some more crumbs of subscrete to tumble from the broken wall that we were still cowering behind. Tentatively, peeking over the jagged edge, I saw the pod's door as it was sent spinning end over end from explosive bolts. Before the chunk of metal even landed, an armored human had burst forth from the metal cocoon and was firing at the disoriented directorate forces nearby. I at first assumed that it was a robot. Sure, it sounds foolish now, but at the time it seemed like a reasonable conclusion. Considering the human was clad in all-covered armor pressure suit, topped off by the now ubiquitous angular helmet and the green-eyed face-covering respirator that have since become synonymous with the Territorial Union's military forces. It also didn't hurt that it was the first introduced to the soldier by the image of it systematically terminating the Directorate infantry. It was only after surveying the rest of the battlefield and seeing a pair of humans drag a wounded comrade to safety as a robotic notion was dispelled. As we gawked at the display of combat prowess, I noticed a pair of Mycene troops setting up a heavy plasma repeater and pointing it at the human. Without thinking, I rose up from cover and fired a burst of my plasma rifle. While I wasn't sure that I hit anything, such was the damage to my combat senses, my attack did alert the human. Without skipping a beat, it turned to the Mycene, raised its rifle, and fired with the same machine-like efficiency exhibited by its fellows. And the human definitely made sure it didn't miss. Looking away from the human, I raised my optics to my eyes and scanned the battlefield. To my surprise, the humans were actually breaking through and entrenched directorate forces protecting the anti-air guns, and had even managed to disable some of the batteries, as more and more enemy defenses fell to the humans, I finally appreciated the beauty of their strategy. The reason the Directorate's anti-air weapons were so effective was because our shuttles and dropships had to enter a planet's atmosphere at low enough speed to safely deaccelerate, land, and deploy troops. Thus, there were easy pickings for enemy fighters, missiles, and AA guns. The humans, though, were apparently crazy enough to skip the safely deaccelerating part and all-out slam into the planet's surface, giving the defenders no time to react. Furthermore, the humans had planned their drops so that their soldiers would land in clusters near the enemy anti-air defenses, allowing them to swarm the Mycene. The last directorate forces soon fell to the human soldiers, and the anti-air batteries went silent. 
Within moments, shuttles and dropships from both the Concordance and the Territorial Union were descending through the atmosphere to deliver our much-needed reinforcements. A movement nearby caught my eye. To my surprise, the human from earlier was jogging up to us. Thanks for the assist back there, it said to me. What? I exclaimed. Thank you, I said. That was insane. Without you, we would be all be dead. I gestured wildly to my comrades. Who are you guys anyway? Corporal Churton asked in amazement. The human simply chuckled. We are the Territorial Army, the soldier replied. 96th Spaceborne Infantry Division. We're here to assist you guys. The human suddenly raised his hand to the strange angular helmet that he was wearing. After nodding a few times in response to some communication or other, it turned back to me. I have a link up with my unit now, it said. Thanks again, and good luck. As the human jogged off to join the main group of Union soldiers, my head was still reeling from the insanity of it all. Emboldened by the lack of any directed forces, I carefully made my way over to the human's pod. Some lettering was stenciled on the side of the vehicle in both human script and concordance standard. 96th Spaceborne, the text read, followed by a phrase that I felt, felt encapsulated the human strategy perfectly, while still being vastly understated. Death! From above! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1737 Story number one. Kilroy was here too, written by Trudy Visceral. It was, and still is, a joke. That was all it was supposed to be. A joke to keep their soldiers' morale high. If anyone were to make a simple extranet query, they would find entire pages dedicated to it. Or simple observation, and you'd find it in some random info cache. Sadly, it seems that the races that went to war with humanity and the AF just couldn't bother. Or at least not until they had wasted a great sum of time and resources. The first with the Ganeshk. It doesn't matter how you pronounce it. They are extinct, and no one is going to correct you. They were essentially the galaxy's barbarians. Just showed up one day, attacked the... Formerly peaceful pariah. Village burnt more than that and moved on. By the time they decided that the humans were a perfect target, five other species were at war with them. For the year that they fought, colonies lost, regained, glassed, etc. And then suddenly, the Ganeshk soldiers started asking in a very strange question to their human slaves. Who is Kilroy? The humans laughed, even when they were punished for it. The rest of the species was dumbfounded, however. When several Ganesk soldiers also asked them that question, not like they were going to answer them whilst the barbarians were burning the colonies to the ground. But the survivors brought this up with the humans, and then Kilroy started appearing on alien worlds as well. The Ganesk warlords were convinced that this was either an elite squadron or their greatest warriors, so they started a hunt. A planet to the soldiers that kills or captures Kilroy. This was when the humans started to take advantage of the enemy's naivety. Entire Ganeshk fleets would warp away from battle and into ion clouds, essentially stranded and left to starve. Others would stop their offensive on a base coral colony, turn right around and run as fast as they could, straight into a field of mines. After all, the Ganeshk were to receive the message from the seemingly friendly source, yelling at the top of their lungs that, Kilroy is here! 
they'd immediately stop whatever they were doing and attempt to earn themselves a personal planet. This went on for a while before the Ganeshk finally understood. The Pariah, slave who didn't have the will to fight anymore in just two months, they were the biggest fools of the galaxy, lost nearly three quarters of the offensive to their investigative incompetence. The remaining fourth was barely enough to hold the combined forces of six allied species descending upon their home world for some minutes. After a mere year and two months, they were completely gone from the galaxy. That, and the alliance was formed from the six races that fought the barbarians. The second to fall was a rogue AI, made by a now extinct race of what all the humans call fish people. This AI had reached the conclusion that sentient life was the detriment to the galaxy, so it sought to exterminate everything. Every man, woman, child, and any mention or sign of sentient life. Wiped, which is why the fish people were never given a name. We only ever learned of them by the dying words of the AI. How did it die? After some months of warfare, the now-called Allied Forces noticed that the AI didn't bother investigating much. It just located resources, made an armada, and headed for the next sign of sentience. Sometimes, though, it actually checked the database of a downed ship or exterminated colonies for star charts. They also noticed from the downed drones that the AI didn't bother with firewalls or any form of security. These were made for very fast mass production, so they took a page from their war against the Gnushk and hacked a drone, put some info onto the little someone called Kilroy, and sent it back. Suddenly, the AI decided that this little star about to go supernova was the most interesting thing in the universe. And then, it's extremely radioactive star. And then, some empty pockets of dead space with no resources to refuel. And then, this little planetoid dangerously close to the black holes of Enterizon. This went on for a year or so. Until all there remained was the main AI core in its main body. Or what was left of it, warping near a human colony. They knew they held no chance face-to-face -face against a never-ending replicator, so they just made the AI afraid. Kilroy was here, there, and everywhere, and the AI wanted this sentient supercreature gone. It just so happens that all the places this Kilroy was last seen were the most dangerous places in the galaxy, according to the star charts the drone recovered. Perhaps the AI was giving too much credit. Malfunctioning VI would be more accurate, but alas, it was not to last. After copying everything off its memory banks and hearing its last words, the humans, after trying and failing to hack its main processes after all, this wasn't another mass-produced drone, just stuck some nuclear fusion warheads to it and forced it to warp back into a pocket of dead space. Some months later, the colonists saw one out-of-place dot in the sky, for that night only, and the Alliance had access to nanotechnology now. The last was a hive mind of giant bugs. The humans were surprised, not because of the sudden planet-sized ship appearing in allied space, but by the fact that this hadn't happened earlier. Regardless, if you've been paying attention, you could guess where this is going. They shared blows for months. They couldn't get rid of the giant planet hive floating right there, no matter what they threw at it. There was always a drone ship ready to take the blow. They could barely repel the attacks to the colonies and stations only to be overwhelmed by another equally strong horde showing up in the slater. And then, just one of many drones finds the now all too familiar Kilroy was here, painted on a wall of a colony it was invading. And then another. And another. 
and another. It was speculated that the queen of these creatures had assumed the same as the previous two combatants at this point. As such, it started abducting, not killing people. And the second the high command of allied forces noticed this, suddenly Kilroy was this looming force threatening to eliminate the hive in its entirety. Huge swaths of drones would show up at one place, only to get engulfed in plasma cloud from the many mines that were laid there. Or a giant scout drone fleet was vanishing after it going to what was assumed an uncharted space. All because the captured, after being asked, would tell the same story. Kilroy was here. And here they went, directly into traps laid by the Alliance. It took a very long time before the Queen caught up, and by then, they had forgotten their previous security checkups to their captured, and suddenly, the Queen was sterile. The drones took many months to finally start to decline in number, but quickly fell after that. And now, the Alliance had access to planet-sized ships with more alien technology. Now, these are only the ones that were completely wiped due to them not doing their research. The occasional dictator, or god emperor, or warlord, or whatever, showed up now and then. They'd waste many resources trying to find the shredded Kilroy, only to realize that they were played for fools months, or maybe years later, but the war still went on afterwards. And sometimes, it wouldn't even be called that in arid planets. All those with extremely dangerous fauna, the drawing said, Foo! was here. Sometimes it would be called Chad, and complained about the invader's lack of sugar. And in the slaver planet stations, it was called Lincoln, and it was watching. I write this because we were one of the few who that decided to actually do their research before declaring all-out war against the Allied forces, because our scouts started reporting about this mysterious Kilroy. I wanted to report with complete security that this Kilroy was nothing more than a joke blown out of proportion and taken advantage of accordingly. But one of our spies returned with news about a supposed ally forces super soldier experiment that they called Project Kilroy. But with these people, I believe they might have let us know on purpose. End of story. Story number two. It's what we do. Written by Katoshi. Essek sighed through his proboscis as he showed his human friend the datapad, going through the fauna section from the drone scans of the newly discovered planet. He knew from the start that it was a bad idea, but Lee had been very persistent and wouldn't stop bothering him until he acquiesced. That didn't mean that he wouldn't at least try to delay the inevitable. As you can see, he quickly flicked past two pages before coming to rest on an entry about a creature resembling a Terran snail. The evolutionary traits are fascinatingly similar to both Terra and Ralph, so he was cut off. Go back a page, said Lee, with an all-too-familiar tone. Lee, for once, can we? Lee snatched the datapad from his hands, the edge scratching the chitin of his fingertips. Damn it! He just had them polished. Ha! I knew it! Lee almost squealed in delight as he found a page S had tried to hide. Lee, no, Essek whined, resting his face against the palms of his hands, a reaction he hadn't realized that he had adopted. Lee, yes, the human shouted before connecting to his crew via wrist-mounted communicator. Yo, the rumors were true. Grab the capture gear, boys. I'll be down in five minutes. We're leaving in twenty. Loud whoops were heard over the comms before Lee hung up and grabbed his bag. I'll catch you later, bro. He waved to Essek and began walking out of the lab. 
Ezek slumped against the desk. What is wrong with you guys? Why do you insist on trying to domesticate everything? Even apex predators and other hazardous fauna? He shouted at Lee, who was halfway out of the door. Lee stopped, looked over his shoulder and grinned. It's in our nature. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm gonna get me a land shark. He whooped and took off. Ah, fucking humans. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the Tier 5 members, Marky, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnolds, Oakfield, Lord Azrakal, and it's difficult to pronounce. Thank you very much.